Bullet Man, the human bullet, blasts into the G.I. Joe Super Adventure Team. Eagle-Eyed G.I. Joe and Mike Power, Atomic Man, on patrol, stumble into great danger. Mike, look! The river's gonna overflow and flood that town! Joe, you've got the eyes of an eagle! Let's go! But before the adventure team can make a move... Holy cow, who's that? Looks like he's made of steel! He's the most fantastic action hero you've ever seen. That's who. He's Bullet Man, the human bullet. I'd better do something quick, or that town is all washed up. Look, he's heading right into that mountain. Into it? He's going through it? Like a human bullet. Wow! I'll cut out a piece of this mountain and turn that flooding river into... A giant bathtub. Later... Stranger, you went through that mountain like a bullet! You even look like a human bullet! That's why I'm known as Bullet Man, the human bullet. Why not join the adventure team? With Joe's eagle eyes, my atomic power, and your arms of steel, Bullet Man, we'd be invincible! Together, we'll turn the adventure team into the super adventure team. All for one, and one for all! New Bullet Man, the Human Bullet, Eagle Eye G.I. Joe, Mike Power Atomic Man, and other Adventure Team members are available at your local toy store. Free G.I. Joe Action Pack This free G.I. Joe Super Action Pack, valued at over $5, includes Spy Outfit in Black, Inflatable life raft and oar, binoculars, radio, signal light, and more. Just mail in the Hasbro seal from the back of any eagle-eyed G.I. Joe, Bullet Man, Atomic Man, or Intruder package. Welcome back to the 100th episode of Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast. I'm your host, Al Sedano, and back again is my, I believe you're my first co-host at least, or one of my longest co-hosts at least on here, John Wilson. Happy birthday to you, 100 episodes to you. Yay! I can't believe I can me on the show. This is pretty exciting. I remember when this show started... And of course, you know, you know, I've talked about this a few times, how Adam Warlock is just one of those characters I've always been fascinated by. And hey, there's this podcast starting up about him. And I listened to your first few episodes and and uh, wanted to join you on the journey. And you were gracious enough to bring me on here. So this is it. We are, I don't even know, have I even been on half of them? Because you've made a lot of episodes without me. Um, I don't know. I should have, count, I should count this out at some point. Not that I need to have been on some significant number. I was just wondering uh, how many episodes there have been because there have been the this whole run 
of 13 issues so far, but then Warlock has so many comics in other places that we've talked about. I'd say you, at the minimum, you had to be at least in quarter of them. Yeah. Because, I mean, we have the 13 issues of Warlock. There's the Marvel premiere issues. There was uh, a couple issues of Hulk. Uh, Avengers yep. Defenders War was two And how episodes. many episodes did Avengers Defenders War end up going? Was that three episodes? Two. Two. And uh, also Infinity War, the Infinity War episode. Yep, yep. So, at the bare minimum, you've been in about a quarter of the show. And have we done Captain Marvel yet? Uh, yeah, that was me. Me and Brian did the Captain Marvel run. Okay. We did, I put them in concurrently with the Warlock one, so. No, I'm sorry, the film. Oh. Well, that's not out yet. Oh, no, it will be out now. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> as I was wondering, as we're recording this, the film is in our future. As they're listening to this, is the film in the past? Yes, it, it would be because of um, yeah, that's right. Because Endgame would have been one of the like episode ninety eight or ninety nine. Okay. Um, uh, okay, Endgame, not Captain Marvel. I'm sorry, I got confused. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Avengers Endgame, that's another one, and then we have this one here. Okay, so I mean, um, we might talk about Captain Marvel a little bit when we do Endgame, depending on how much it impacts. Right. Because it's all a mystery to us due to the uh, shenanigans of time travel. And also just the fact that at least to talk a little bit, because, I mean, granted, she wasn't in that many of the issues. Well, actually, she wasn't really in any of the issues I talked about of, of Captain Marvel at that point. She, Carol Danvers wasn't a wasn't a, a supporting character anymore. But, I mean, we did talk about Captain Marvel a lot. And I know yeah. he's in the issue. He's in the movie. So I probably would at least probably bring up him and Captain Marvel just a little bit. Of course you did. We listened to that last week. Yes. Yes, we did do that. <laughs> so I'll get the doctor here to help figure this out. So we have Warlock 13 and 14 on the table? Yes. 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 Double-sized episode, people. Strap in. It's going to get cosmic. We're going to steal your stars. Ooh. Yes, this is the Star Thief two-parter. And he's a villain who does come back, sort of. But it's another character. His name, he's a legacy villain. Someone else comes back with his name years later. Oh, that's weird. Okay. In the early issues of A New Warriors, they fight a character called Starfief. Is it a similar concept? Sort of. He's kind of, a, from what I remember, because it's been a while, I think it's like issue, issues like six through nine of New Warriors, the, the first run. He has a problem with... Uh, either man exploiting or going to space. So he's like trying to destroy the rocket, you know, um, space. Oh yeah. I vaguely remember that. I've read those issues, but it's been a while. I've only read them once. Yeah. It's like a three part of like half the team goes to fight him. And like night thrasher takes off, goes against like the punisher or something. Sounds right. We have an interesting issue. Cause of course, warlock has had his real big hurrah. And now Starlin has to fill issues while he builds up toward his ne next big climactic saga. We had our one-off with Pip last issue. Yeah, that's like your recovery issue. That's the kitty's fairy tale. Right. But now we have to do something new with Warlock, and it's a completely different idea. And yet there's some stuff in here that actually does relate to that mega story. We'll talk about that as we go along. Oh, yeah, definitely. But I, I didn't even notice it until I was rereading and taking notes today, and I realized there's some stuff. It's towards the end of the issue, though. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And speaking of that, I should probably let everyone know what happens, just in case they don't have their copy in front of them. So, hold on. 
gonna give you the pro- gonna give you the uh, synopsis. Probably throw a promo on after that, and then John and I will be right back. Warlock number thirteen. Here dwells the Star Thief. Story and layouts: Jim Starlin. Finished art: Steve Lealoha. Lettering: Tom Orzakowski. Coloring: Petra Goldberg. Edited by Marv Wolfman. Cover art by Jim Starlin. The cover for this issue features Adam surrounded by stone giants ready to destroy him. This issue starts on Earth, in Wildwood Hospital in New England. There is a patient there named Barry Bauman, who was born with a most unusual brain disorder. His brain is not connected to any of his five senses. He cannot see, hear, smell, taste, or feel anything. Without these senses, he is unable to do anything and does not appear to even know there is a world around him. Most of the staff are nervous about entering his room because of the private nurse he has. One they think to be quite mad. However, Barry's father is the chairman of the board for the hospital, so they just have to live with it. Deep in space, Adam Warlock is attempting to decide what to do with the rest of his short life when he notices that the stars are going out. After some internal debate, he decides to investigate and finds a world now frozen over and lifeless without its life-giving sun. Although strangely, even without the star to anchor them, this world and the others around it still stay in their proper places. Using his soul gem to try and trace the power that did this, he is able to track it to the mind of a single Earthman. Chapter 2. The Bizarre Brain of Barry Bauman We journey back to Earth to the hospital room of Barry Bauman, who is the star thief. We learn his origin, how he knew nothing but empty darkness, until he became aware. He first spent time investigating the only thing he could, his own brain, until he knew everything about it and could use it to do things that most others could not, if he knew there were any others. He was eventually able to use his powers to explore what was outside himself and found others. But these others could move. Soon enough, he could use his mind to take control of theirs and started to control the nearest one to him, his nurse, Tom Voskin. He used Tom to learn everything he could and realized that another of his abilities was telekinesis. He used that ability to scare others in the hospital and cause major accidents nearby and even natural disasters. Eventually, what he decided he wanted was revenge. Revenge on a world that never bothered to try and cure him. He sent his mind out into space and used it to remove the stars, sending them into an alternate dimension inside his own mind. And not just the stars, but their light that was heading to Earth too. His plan is to remove all the stars, one by one, sending the planet into a panic, and then finally, removing our own sun. Then, he plans to send his mind into space permanently. However, as he is starting this plan, he fills the probe from Warlock's soul gem and decides to investigate. Distracted, his hold on Tom weakens. Back in space, as he is flying towards Earth, Adam is confronted by the Star Thief, who just appears to him as a pair of massive, cosmic-looking eyes. He attempts to understand Warlock, as he feels they are similar, but Adam will not stand for what Star Thief is doing. So Star Thief creates stone creatures to destroy him, but Adam destroys them instead. Star Thief is unsure how Adam was able to survive this, but Adam's only explanation is that he is a true Warlock. He is Earth, Wind, Water, and Fire. Star Thief still plans to destroy him, but is intrigued and proposes a challenge. He will use only physical means to try and stop Adam from reaching Earth. Although he says once Adam reaches there, there's going to be nothing he could do to stop him anyway. Having no choice, 
Adam agrees and starts once again to fly to a planet that is starting to realize what is happening and is going berserk with panic. To be continued. Jeff and Rick present Unpacking the Power of Power Pack, where we journey through each issue of the most underrated Marvel series of the 80s while drinking beer, analyzing awesome and amazing adolescent adventures, and absorbing alcohol. We got kids with powers, we got villains with attitude. We got superhero guests, like all of them from the Marvel Universe. We have thematically appropriate beer reviews. We have good jokes and bad song parodies. One stop for all your Power Pack pod-pleasing procurements. And we got alliteration. Find Unpacking the Power of Power Pack wherever fine podcasts are played. Costumes on. And we're right back. We are right here, ready to go to Wildwood Hospital. Yes, in New England. On the planet that is known to some as Telus, and to others, it's Earth. And I was very confused by this. (laughs) You too. So I did some wikiing and some Googling and some searching and some reading. Turns out, of course, this is the 1970s. Science fiction, written science fiction, is in a new heyday. It's, you know, the, that form of storytelling is really moving forward. And other names for Earth were pretty common, and Telus was one of those. Telus comes from an ancient name for the goddess of Earth. That's pretty much what I found out, too. We did the same research, more or less. I found out, yeah, Telus is a Latin word meaning Earth and may refer to Terra, the ancient Roman Earth Mother goddess, uh, an alternate name for the planet Earth, often used in science fiction, like the books of E.E. E. Smith, it says, was an example. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the Earth is named after dirt. We call this planet Earth because soil is Earth, not the other way around. And so other planets can have earthquakes because Earth is just ground and yeah. all the planets have a ground and lots of planets have a north. Lots of planets have a north. They do. <laughs> I always find that weird when I'm like something science fiction and like the planets are named something weird. And I'm like, is that the name for what you call the ground? Like, why do we just name our planet after the dirt and everyone else is like, you know, some kind of imaginative name for their planet? We're like, we're going to name it. Earth, because that's what that is. Like, we really didn't put much thought into that, did we? And we had kind of a creepy horror movie style beginning to the story. Oh, yeah, with this hospital thing with her, the nurse not liking to go into this guy's room. Mm-hmm. Which I'm trying to figure out, by the way, she's bringing him, it looks like plates for dinner. If this guy is a complete vegetable, like nothing, you know, because Barry Bauman has no senses whatsoever. All of his five senses are disconnected from his body, so he has obviously never been what we would call conscious, ever. How does he eat that food? I mean, does that nurse have to chew it up for him and feed him like a baby bird? That is weird. The guy who's attending just says, put it on the table. What else would they do? They should have him hooked up to some sort of, like, nutritive IV or something. I mean, even in the 70s, I would think they'd have something like that. So I'm like, how do they do that? I'm like, maybe that's what drove the guy insane. They say he's a blind, deaf mute without any sense of smell, taste, or touch. So he can function. He just has no way of perceiving his environment. So I guess, you know, this is this is really hard to even fathom. How do you, if you can't see what you're doing, and you can't feel what you're doing, how would you even know what you're doing? I guess that's why he doesn't. Yeah. 
I mean, except for I mean, I guess obviously the automatic the automatic response functions work. He breathes because otherwise he would have been dead as an infant. Mm-hmm. You know, the heart beats. He breathes. He. I'm assuming bowel and other movements happen. It's just beyond that, you know, beyond anything like that, you know, there's nothing, I guess he doesn't, nothing, con, no conscious movement. Right. It, it yeah. does kind of remind me, make me think of the 70s out here, where it's like his father is chairman and, uh, you know, kept him alive for 23 years and has a nurse, but the nurse is completely insane. Nowadays, that would not fly. They'd be like, uh, yeah, this guy has a mental, pro- some kind of problem and we can't have him here. He's disrupting the hospital. I don't care if you're, the, you know, you're on the board. But back then it would be like, well, he's on the board. What are you going to do? He hired a psycho. Eh, right. What you going to do about it? <laughs> Makes you wonder what kind of insane he is. I mean, we find out a little more as the story goes on, but like, what is he doing? That's so insane. But that's when we get, um, switch scenes to Mar, uh, Marvel warlock, <laughs> who is 420 light years from earth, just kind of floating on a asteroid pancake. Yes. Now, I had to ask a question about this. Uh-huh. Because it says here, 425 light years from Earth, deep within the Hercules star cluster. So I got curious. Is that why they know? Now, obviously, we have to understand, We have to accept the fact that back then they did not have Google. Right. You know, if they wanted to know these things, they actually had to do real research. So a lot of times, of course, it's made up or guessed. Which is usually what I expect, you know, which is where I figure Stan's, Stan Lee's expertise in magnets come from. You know, he just kind of guessed because he wasn't going to look it up online. There was no online. So I was looking at it. I'm like, okay, there's a, there's a Hercules galaxy and a Hercules star cluster. The Hercules galaxy is 2.1 billion light years away. So okay. that's, that's not it. The Hercules star cluster is 22,000 light years away. So I started looking, well, what's 420 light years away? And now apparently they have found a planet. With 30 huge rings, literally 420 light years away. So I was like, hmm. But I wanted to know more, and this is a science question. So I went to the Reed Richards of comic book podcasting, W. Blaine Dowler, and asked him about that. And he said, it's a marijuana reference. 420. Wow, blaze it. I'm like, oh, God, Blaine, why do you make me feel so stupid? Oh, that's delightful. I love it. I love it. Making up bullshit about comet about space and making a marijuana reference in the middle of it. That's fantastic. I'm like, I'm trying I'm looking through all of these, like, oh, there's more than one Hercules. Well, let's see where that one maybe it's that one. No, maybe it's that one. Well, what it's is it's pot. It's weed, dopey. Yeah, that's great. Oh, and of course the hospital is Wildwood, which yeah. just feels like a you know, exotic plant. So he comes to this place to be alone with his thoughts, with his now multi-compartmental brain and the vampire soul gem he is forced to wear. That soul gem's getting creepier if the issues go on. Mm Mm-hmm. So he's just kind of sitting out there wondering if he's lost touch with reality. And while he's wondering if he's lost touch with reality, the stars start disappearing, which makes him wonder if he's lost touch with reality. I can understand that. This is pretty much where we left him off last issue. Yeah. Now, here's my favorite part of that. Yes, the ultra perception I've gained since my link up with the Magus's mind assures me that as insane as the situation is, it is still what I, Adam Warlock, define as reality. Yes, because the crazy version of myself that I have partially absorbed says this is real, so it must be. 
if my crazy voice says it's real, it must be real. My crazy uh, voice would never lie to me. Adam, I think that's when you know you're crazy. Then he says that part of my mind, which is the Magus, also feels that it would be better to find a new universe. I'm like, no, no, no. You're 10 years too early for that. Yeah, and you probably would not be better off in the new universe. You still got a better shot here, I think. Even with the stars disappearing. Yep. But the Soul Gem wants to help. Because it's like, well, if, if everyone dies, then who am I going to su- Who am I going to vampire suck? We got to save everybody so I can eat them. Which, you know, in a very self-absorbed move, but I can understand that completely. Yeah, someone has all of his different voices, have all these different ideas. It's like, well, the rational part of me has been outvoted. Looks like I got to go check this out. <laughs> Looks like I'm going to go, you know, have an adventure. And That's he flies off. Always listen to your crazy voices, Adam. Yes. Well, I guess it would be a boring comic if you didn't. Right. And now we're up to chapter two, The Bizarre Brain of Barry Bauman. Starlin really liked doing these chapters, even though I don't think most other comics were doing them at this point. Because most of his issues have at least multi-chapters. Now, you skipped over a couple pages where he realized there's a star thief. Oh, I, you know what? That was an accident. I did. I literally skipped the pages. Which, you know, it's your show. We don't want to look at the pages that much. But I thought maybe, maybe you meant to do them. I did. I just grabbed the pages too fast. He passes by a planet that had been inhabited. And now it's, um, the star is gone. Yeah, the sun that that was lighting and heating the world is gone. And so the world is a frozen wasteland. And everything who lived there is dead. Which is pretty horrific if you imagine. I mean, imagine if all of a sudden the sun just vanished. Right? Kind of like um, those broccoli people in the Dark Phoenix saga. Mm-hmm. Well, no, she made it go Nova. Yeah. Oh, son, they got incinerated. They got the other way. I guess she feasted on it until the gravity core released the plasma and it blew outward. Yeah, but um, the final night, the DC mini uh, little crossover they did in the late 90s. I don't know if you ever read that one. I have not. Oh, that was the whole premise of it. A sun eater came and ate the sun. So he sends out a beam from his soul gem that is now like a, a Star Trek sensor probe. It can just check out the universe and see what's going on. And he's able to figure out that somebody has actually stolen the star's power. Well, somewhere here, I forget where, but I know at some point he says because of the uh, connection to the Magus, he has like some he's he has some new abilities. I forget where I remember. Re- I remember reading that this morning when I read it. He says, my jewel seems to have a built-in self-preservation factor, so broke its connection with the strange force um, just as it was completed. I don't know. I think he has a magnetic plot device on his forehead. Oh, and, well, uh, <laughs> no, that, that gem's a plot device? Never. <laughs> I mean, I guess that, that works as well as any reason. But yeah, he tries to uh, sense it, and apparently Starfeef is too powerful for the soul gem. But all of this is being done by a single human being on Earth, and it's all being done mentally, which is crazy. Of That's course, there's Professor Xavier has a pretty strong mental power, and a few years earlier, he combined with all the minds of all the humans of Earth, reached out and also combined with like some spacefaring races to destroy the Xenox or something like that. And oh, that's yeah. what initially drew 
Lalandra's attention to him. So she started heading out toward his direction later. Oh, that's that, what did that, it? Huh? Is that what did that? I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. Ah. Would that be the most powerful Earth mental event in Marvel so far as I know so far? Yeah, I think you're. I think I would think you're right, though. I mean, I didn't know about the Landra part, but I knew about that because that's when they brought him back at the end of uh, the Roy Thomas Neil Adams run. Mm-hmm. So that brings us to chapter two, which is also the last chapter title. Yeah, like I was saying, he does like to use these chapters, but his chapters all—they don't really um, make sense if you're looking at the pages. It's not like he's has the issue split up evenly into three or four parts. Right. Chapter one was like the first eight or nine pages, and then the rest of the book is chapter two. And it wasn't called chapter one. It was just the comic. Yeah. And then dun-dun-dun, chapter two, the bizarre brain of Barry Bauman. But once we get like the two or three pages about the nature of Barry Bauman, the story just keeps on going. Yeah, you would think that would be like chapter three after that, but it's not. But it's not. It does remind me of the structure of like the first couple of issues of Starlin, um, because he was using chapters a lot there, but... yeah. He's less consistent about it now. Maybe yeah. he's just like taking gaps between work days and not working as consistently. And so he just forgets that he's doing this. <laughs> like he w- he had a plan for chapter three, but by the time he got to that part, he forgot it was supposed to be chapter three and just did the next page. Yeah, a little too much April 20th himself, you know. What? Jim Starlin in the 70s was not known for partaking of anything like that, sir. Right. So we've got the guy in the hospital laid up with an insane nurse looking over him, Barry Bauman. I love that first panel of him, though. It's really kind of creepy with like the 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 light, the night light coming in through the shades. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say before we get to that part, I like that next page or two of showing how he's like exploring his own mind. Right. I like how that's represented and how that's done. Because he has no ability to interact with his environment. All he has is his own mental headspace, which is a really bizarre way to imagine somebody living. And it seems like this sort of thing that like might have been inspired by like observing somebody with, you know, a legitimate situation where they're like maybe in a coma or something or a waking coma. I don't know if that's a real thing, but I can see, you know, you, you see somebody you're like, what's really going on inside their mind? And, but even more so, even weirder for this one, because at least someone who's in a coma has had, you have to assume, has had interactions with people in the world. Mm-hmm. This guy had never had interactions with anybody. So, like, anything, like, I don't even know if we can imagine how he would pre- perceive stuff inside, if, you know, from once he became conscious inside his own head. Right. Because it's would be like... Um, I, I didn't see it, but was that movie with Jodie Foster where, like, she lived, like, out in the woods by herself, so she had, like, her own language? Nell. Yeah, that's it. If I don't go, got ants to come. Hey, in the way. Based on the English language from her childhood. But, okay. yeah. You find that out through the course of the movie, I guess. You know, spoilers for a 1994 movie. Um, yeah. You find out through the course of the movie that she actually was a child who spoke English and then was, for whatever reason thrust into self-supporting herself in the wild and so some of the things that she would say were just like bastardizations of english phrases from childhood okay so this is even more removed than that was right that at right. least had some basis this has no basis he just had to explore his own brain 
And as he's exploring his own brain, he realizes he is able to interact with his environment through telekinesis. So he can't see what he's doing. He's just able to, like, you know, tell mentally and get revenge against a world that made no effort to allow me to be as they were. Yeah, he's able to now control his nurse's uh, Tom Voskan. He's able to control his body, sends him out to learn. So I have to assume that's why Tom is considered insane, because he's probably mentally controlled by Barry 99% of the time. Mm-hmm. He has some interesting social commentary along the way, though. He says he wants revenge against the people who spend billions of dollars to kill each other, yet would not spend the measly million or so it would have cost to cure me. And, uh, you know, there's something to be said, you know, whenever you're talking about doing some sort of, you know, social outreach program and the government's like, how are we going to fund this? And it's like, well, how about you not spend so many billions on, you know, military? Yeah, of course, like, of course, he does use his powers also very selfishly in a way very similar for that. He's definitely very deranged. Yeah, I mean, he causes a 62-car pile, 62-car pile, yeah, 62-car pile up. And he also does creates an earthquake because the vo- the, yeah, destroyed a certain large city in Nevada, which I tried looking up and I couldn't figure out what that was. So he's just doing these things for fun. He's just reaching out there and saying, oh, look, I can do this, bam. And then his plan, which is, to me, the most selfish I mean, he might be the most self-centered, selfish person in existence here, is he wants to destroy every single star so that everyone on Earth will start seeing them vanish and panic completely until he finally destroys them last. And I'm thinking, so you're going to kill everything else out there because you don't like the people on this planet. I mean, you know, it's like I'm going to destroy this whole building because this guy was mean to me. Mm-hmm. So everyone else must suffer. I'm like, damn, this guy must be like this guy's like the biggest SOB. Yeah. Yeah, he is he is extremely, you know, twisted in his mind. And but also like exceedingly powerful. Like his telepathy, his telekinesis seems to have no limit whatsoever. And no limit like on a cosmological scale. He is able to reach out to stars. And cause them to vanish by transporting them into some sort of mental dimension of yeah. his own brain. Yeah, I'm assuming it's just an alternate dimension that he's able to access. I, I have to assume they're not actually in his brain. But... I don't know. I looked inside there once. My God, it's full of stars. Oh, I figured out a second before what you were going to do. <laughs> <laughs> For a second, they're going to be like, I looked in there. There's plenty of room. Space for rent. Yep. I mean, he does have a minor, I guess, a little bit of a, well, I don't know if it's a limit or if it's just him not paying attention. But when he leaves to go, because he senses the connection with from Warlock Soul Gem. Yeah, now we're caught up to the rest of the story. But yeah, but he releases Tom. Tom is released from his control. So is it that he can't? If is he using all his all of his ability there to see what's going on out in space that Tom's released, or is he just not paying attention? I would say he's not paying attention. If he can snuff out stars, he should be able to do this. He's just distracted. That makes sense. And then we jump back to Warlock flying, which is where I got to. I did ask a. I did actually get a legitimate answer from. <laughs> Because <laughs> I had a legitimate, legitimate science question this time for Blaine. 
because Warlock's here flying, saying, even at the parsec-consuming rate I'm traveling, it'll take me weeks to reach Sol, which is the sun. Mm-hmm. So I asked him about that. How fast would he have to be flying if he's going to be getting still 420 light years away you know, to Earth in weeks? According to Blaine, 420 light years is 129 parsecs, two, three significant digits. To get back in, say, 21 days, so we're measuring in weeks, he'd be traveling at 7,305 times the speed of light. 7,000 times the speed of light. Yeah. So he probably could do the Kessel Run in 12 parsecs. I would say so. So that's one thing that definitely gets listed for some of these space characters is how they must have some kind of, maybe not, you know, maybe not in an atmosphere, but out in open space, some kind of really, uh, I mean, they're really able to travel very fast, obviously, some kind of super speed because, you know, that's like at like a, not quite at, but almost at like a pre-crisis Superman level. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, there's a bit of a zinger in the next issue, which we're going to talk about when we get there. But the, his extreme speeds here could actually contribute to that. I would, I mean, what's going to happen is complete sci-fi nonsense. But, you know, I could see it happening if he's going that fast. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, we will get, I already asked questions about those two. So we'll have the answers on those when we get to those issues. Okay. But yeah, so this is where he meets the Star Thief. Who is just like a pair of Psylocke eyes floating in the sky. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of a cool little pattern with like little arrows and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like a little psylocke Yeah, it is very psylocke actually. And Star Thief actually kind of almost likes Warlock. He's like, we're very similar. Yeah, it's one of those things where someone says, hey, we're a lot alike. And you're like, um, no, we're not. <laughs> This is the part the mega stuff comes out. Now, I don't know. Here's the thing. It's, uh, what is that? That page where he's Warlock's yelling at him, the center set of panels. Because as pitiful as they may be, they are still life, and as such are priceless beyond measure. While you, my powerful friend, are obviously anti-life, for you clearly place no worth upon that one treasure that once gone can never be replaced. So I must fight you, Star Thief, for I am life and must defend life. That's more or less what the Magus was saying to Thanos, that his his purpose, that he had a purpose, was to fight the champion of death or champion of anti-life, which is Thanos. So I'm just wondering, is this the Magus part of the mind coming out? Or maybe the Magus really wasn't the purported champion. Maybe it was Warlock and Starthief, not Magus and Thanos. Or yeah, I mean, it should be the fact that Magus is a later version of Warlock. I mean, he's changed a lot over the millennia to become the magus but he still has that same seed of existence so he is life and he must defend life what that looks like and what that entails changes for the magus but yeah or maybe the magus was meant to be the magus just so he would make adam warlock who he is now but i don't think that warlock i mean warlock is saying things here that he values life but I'm not sure how much he values individual lives. You know, like he'll fight a big cosmic force because it can sweep through the galaxy and kill, you know, races and planets. But does Warlock care so much about the individual person who's getting killed by an individual threat? I don't think he does. I think his, 
I think he, he oh. defends life, but he doesn't defend lives. I don't know, maybe. I mean, remember, he did get involved in the whole thing with the Magus just because that one girl was killed. That's true. And, you know, if you want to get somebody to defend you against a tyrant, the the one of the best ways to do that is to be a pretty girl in danger. Mm-hmm. Or a pretty girl although, who gets killed. Although, to be fair, I don't know if that matters for Adam. I mean... What did I say once, I think? Like, the Adam and Gamora relationship is like Batman and Catwoman. If Catwoman is as repressed as Batman is, and Batman is, you know, even way, way further repressed. So, I mean, Adam barely recognizes... I mean, you can almost say Adam's asexual. Right. I mean, we've never... Up until this point so far, we have never seen even a hint of interest in that. That's true. With the Nothing exception, romantic. With the exception of the thing with Sif, but beside, that really wasn't romantic, A, eh? That was more of a childish want, like, you know, gimme. But that also is a whole different life. So at least in mm-hmm. this life, since he's come out of the cocoon, he's not had any interest in anything like that. He's almost like a monk. But that takes us into the fighty-fight part of the issue, because Star Thief uses the stone around Warlock, because Warlock's standing on some sort of planetoid. And he animates into these, I don't know. Homoculus? Homoculi? Yeah, these golems of some sort. That's a better word, golem. And, you know, it's nothing too unusual. It's it's very well drawn. It's a fight. But Warlock makes pretty short work of them. Yeah, they they go to stomp on him, and you see his cape be stomped on. But when they move their foot, there's no cape. He's gone. Where? And he just shows up behind them and just smashes them with one blow. And Starfleet's like, how did you escape my giant without me detecting you? And Warlock has an interesting response. He says, I am a true warlock. I am the end, wind, earth, water, and fire. It's not just a clever name. And I kind of love that. I, I didn't expect it because I, you know, I figured Warlock was just one of those you know cool sounding last names. I don't think we've ever heard him called Adam Warlock because Warlock has meaning. I think I'm trying to remember, but I think I'm, um, it's like 180 or what? Strange Tales 180 or 181 when he first meets Pip and he's on that ship and you know with all the uh, the people, all the non desirables are ready to be destroyed, mm-hmm. and he says, "I won't lead you," but he goes out and beats up all the uh, gu- all the guards. And you just have like that page or two of like warlock, you know, guards standing there and a punch coming from one side and then a kick coming from above. I believe Starlin says something about that there too. Okay. Okay. It's been a while. That's the one that's the issue of Autolycus. So we're talking like, you know, fifteen, twenty episodes ago. Yeah. At least last week. Yeah, or two weeks ago even. But yeah, so Star Thief is not happy. And he starts using, like, mental blasts of his own to try to take out Warlock? I don't know if he does or if he's doing the typical thing of, I allowed you to avoid that mind blast. Which is something Doom would say, you know, if you, you, you sidestepped his blast. I allowed you to mo- avoid that. Mm-hmm. I shot at you, but I missed. I allowed you to not get shot. But he's apparently interested enough still in Warlock that he wants to challenge him. So he's, um, I defy you to reach Earth and kill me as you had planned. I will just only seek to block you with uh, the corporeal creations my mind can create. And he's going to be using the uh, elements. So we have water, air, and fire left. Uh, okay, so he's going to do the other three. Gotcha. 
you know, you claim you're with the elements, so tell you what, I'm going to fight you with your elements. But as he says, although he teases Warlock, says, doesn't matter anyway, because once you get to Earth, you're not going to be able to do anything. What do you mean? Never mind. You'll find out soon enough. Well, my golden foe, do you take up the infinity gauntlet I have thrown down? I don't think he says infinity there. Wait a minute. <laughs> Wait a second. I misread that. Sorry. <laughs> Starlin likes certain words, apparently. And then basically all the panic that he was trying to create on the planet starts. Like, they start going crazy because the lights are gone. The stars are gone. Yeah. Apparently he's making the light that's coming to Earth vanish as well. So it's not just the fact that the star vanishes, because if the star is 4 to 20 your light years away, for an example, obviously that means we're not going to see that light. You know, if it destroyed today, we wouldn't know that for 420 years. Right. But he's making the light vanish right away. I mean, he's also making the planets stay where they are. Because otherwise all those planets would start drifting away if there's no star to keep them in the gravitational pull. So this is the kind of event that if it were in today's comics, I would like to think we'd see a page of various superheroes reacting to this. And if I were writing comics at the time that something like this had happened... I would put like a passing thought bubble, man, ever since, you know, the stars vanished last week, things have been really crazy, but you know, I've got to get these pictures home to aunt May to, to bake her a cake for her birthday or something. Exactly. There's a reason I don't write comics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, especially like in the eighties, you would see pay, you know, like you said, you see a few pages like, uh, in Thor, in the Simonson run, they have the whole thing about the casket of ancient winters being opened, which I've never read that storyline, but I uh-huh. know about it because pretty much every other Marvel book around those months all of a sudden at least said something about it's been really – it's a winter for some reason all of a sudden, but it's the middle of summer. Yep, yep. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yep. Yeah. And, of course, now you know this would be like a 12-part crossover. Yeah, or even if it weren't, even if we're just like you know Starlin doing his own thing over there in like some sort of miniseries – I'd still like to think it would, it would it would have an effect on other books. I know that it's hard to keep all the books interconnected because everybody wants to do their own thing and you don't want to pause your story to acknowledge other stories. But just dropped lines of dialogue and dropped thought balloons can go a long way to making it feel like these are actually events in other in the in the lives of a character rather than just different stories that a fictional character is being used in. Yeah, because sometimes Starlin does do that, and sometimes he almost treats like Warlock's still on Counter-Earth. Yeah. I mean, in fact, this story, there's nothing about this story that actually, if they had just added the words counter to it, would have still worked. Uh-huh. And in fact, it would even make more sense if he doesn't put anyone else on there, because there were no other heroes on, Earth, on Counter-Earth. That's true. That's true. I mean, the closest they had was your it was Professor Von Doom, and, you know... Your your favorite character, the brute. Right. Let's definitely talk about him some more. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we end the issue with people panicking, freaking out, riots. We see people dead, people jumping off of buildings. And a big old full page splash of Warlock approaching home. And it makes me wonder if there was actually going to be more to the issue because it feels like it ends a little bit abruptly. Yeah. Like that page is not 
it just looks like it's just a generic pinup of Warlock in space. Uh-huh. It's also the initial uh, cover, we, uh, the iTunes image I used initially before it became an Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast. Mm-hmm. It was this image from the last page. But yeah, it feels like just a generic image that they just threw in there, a pinup, not a uh, story page. It is 17 pages. And that is the standard nowadays. The previous story was 17 pages. But it just does feel like, okay, we had, actually we had 16 pages of story and then the end. Although the reverse is often true. They often have like an opening page of like just an image without really having it to be the story yet. Yeah, but Starlin little... doesn't do that very much. Maybe he was late. Maybe he was late. You no, know, he. I mean, maybe he had a pinup page ready to go anyway, and he's like, "Oh, we'll put this here at the end." Because he only... also was involved in Hulk 200. Apparently, it's according to the bullpen bulletins. Uh huh. So maybe he got delayed. A little That's too much. Four twenty. Mm hmm. You know, because I thought maybe if I was thinking, oh, maybe they did. He had that instead of the letters page, but I'm like, oh no, there is a letters page. So. <laughs> Anything interesting in it? Um, well, there's a lot of people loving the story. It's issues. It's letters for eleven. So a lot of people loving saying, you know, a lot of people saying, I wish I could, you know, have something horrible to say, but or you know, I can have something to criticize, but like I don't. Uh, the most criticism they have is actually interesting. It's interesting. It's uh, here real quick. It's a short letter. Dear Marvin Jim, in a few words, let me ask why there has been no letters section in Warlock. In fact, not even a mention of one in a title that's been revived for well over half a year. This is most disheartening for those of us fans who've been chomping at the bit to pass along our kudos to the incredible Jim Starlin. Please do something about this deplorable situation soon. Ralph Macchio. <laughs> not Karate Kid Ralph Macchio, most likely. Future Marvel editor Ralph Macchio. And I kind of want to look through his, his books and go, All right, Ralph, let's see how many times you missed the letters page. And I think he actually pronounces it differently. I could be wrong, but I seem to remember it being her. I hearing it like being a Machio or something like that at some point. Oh, but I could maybe. be making up crap on that. Mm, I don't know, but like I said, I want to kind of look through now his run of books and go. Well, how often did you miss the letters page, Ralph? <laughs> All right. Anything else on thirteen? Um, those are, that's the end of my notes for this story. It's a pretty fun first part. There's some there's some cool ideas with the uh, the sci-fi. Um, you know, some of it is nonsense, but, you know, science fiction is fiction. So you take some neat ideas and spin a web around them and try to get the readers to believe it. And this was fun. Yeah. And like I said, he is actually this one and like the next one. He does a bit seem like a bit more sci fi even than the other ones, because the mega stories space was just the backdrop, but he doesn't say anything about it. They're just going through it. Mm hmm. But like here and in the next issue, he starts talking about how far away it is from Earth or how many, you know, even if he doesn't say specifically, but like or he's traveling at a parsec speed, you know, to try and get there in time. You know, he's getting a bit more to the sci fi of it and makes me wonder what he would have done maybe if he had issues, you know, 16 to 20 to still do. Right. But sadly, that is the end of, of this issue. But there's another one coming up very soon. And I guess we'll talk about that now. Yep. In 1939, Timely Comics published its first issues. It later changed its name, first to Alice Comics and then to Marvel Comics. 
In 2014, Marvel polled its fans asking for the 75 greatest Marvel stories from those 75 years and published that list in print form. The unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels countdown will walk through all 75 of these stories every Wednesday from December 31st, 2014 to June 1st, 2016. Join me, Blaine Dowler, and a cadre of other hosts, including established podcasting greats and emerging talents, as we run through the list, discuss each story in the context of its original release, and determine just what makes it so great. The unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels countdown can be found at Bureau42.com, on iTunes, and on Stitcher. Spider-Man and the Twinkie Takers. Everybody lie down. We're going to steal all the Twinkies. You, go down to the storeroom. Bring up all the hostess Twinkies. Little do they know that host Twinkies are never stored away. They're always fresh on the hostess display. I'll stay up here and wait. They'll have to come down soon to see what happened to Parker. What's keeping that guy so long? I can't wait. I want more hostess Twinkies. I'm going downstairs. That's not wise. I can't control all these people by myself. I don't care. I can't wait. I must have those delicious hostess Twinkies. I'm going to double cross my partner and keep all the Twinkies to myself. <laughs> Got him, evil. Ha! This will be the end of your Twinkie taking? We can't get away with it. Drop your gun. We never should have tried anything so evil as to rob a store, especially of Twinkies. I'll never do it again. You can say that again. There are too many good people just waiting to enjoy that golden sponge cake with creamy filling inside. What could be more delicious than Hostess Twinkies? You, you get, get a, a big, big delight, delight in every bite of Hostess, Hostess Twinkies. Okay, now we're back here for our Friends and Enemies segment for this issue. And with me is one of our guests from episode 97, the Avengers Endgame episode, Sarah Sentry. How you doing, Sarah? Great. How's it going? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. Episode 100. Very excited. Yeah. I can't believe I actually made it this far. Yeah, that's impressive. And speaking of impressive numbers, you have a number one coming out soon, don't you? I do. <laughs> um, yeah, my podcast, Bitches on Comics with SE, is going to start very soon. That's going to be August 1st. And as long as everything goes well, uh, there should be a promo for that somewhere in this episode. Yeah. And by the time you finish listening to this episode, uh, August 1st should be up. So there you go. Next thing you have to listen to. I made your lives easier. Thank you. All right. So we are doing the Friends and Enemies segment for this issue, which was Warlock 13. So in case any of you just decide to pop in for episode 100 and never listened to the 99 before, in this Friends and Enemies segment, we take a look at the other comics that were published the same month that we've already talked about on the show before. So we are talking about comics from... Where is that? <laughs> <laughs> Had it here somewhere. There we go. June 1976. So first we have The Avengers, number 148, 20,000 Leagues Under Justice, by Steve Englehart, George Perez, and Sam Granger. The Avengers battle against the Squadron Supreme com continue in the streets of Other Earth. On the undercard, Hellcat and the Beast versus Tom Thumb, Amphibian, and Cap'n Hawk. In the main event, Captain America and Iron Man versus Dr. Spectrum and the Wizard. Yeah, Avengers 148. This was a really interesting issue. I mean, this felt like something that could have been written recently. At least, maybe not the style, but definitely some of the content and themes. At least I thought so. Yeah, definitely. 
I mean, there's a whole thing about how their president was working with the uh, these corporations and they're running everyone's lives. And you guys don't care what we're doing. As long as the dollar's fine, you know, you just turn a blind eye to the horrible things we're doing. And we just say, oh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. <laughs> this sounds not familiar to me in any way. <laughs> exactly. It's like, wow. And this was 1976. Mm-hmm. Plus, this is one of the issues of Hellcat. Yeah. I've always been a fan of the times when the Avengers have these people who are just like Avengers for like 10 issues and then don't go away for a long time. And I always like these weird little characters for the Avengers like Moondragon and Hellcat and Jocosta and Swordsman. Mm-hmm. You know, they just kind of show up like eight issues and then go away forever. It's like, who are you? Yeah, or like the Swordsman where you have more appearances after you die than you had before. True. Or for Hellcat especially, I mean, she started as like an Archie-type character. Totally. I mean, it's like DC bought Archie and made Betty, you know, had, had Betty marry John Constantine because she marries Damien Hellstorm. She does. <laughs> she marries the son of Satan. I'm like, what the hell? That doesn't happen this issue, but it does happen in, I think it's like within 10 years of this coming out. And it's really good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Everybody it, should read it. Wait, no, yeah, 20 years probably. No, you were right the first time. It was like 10 years because it was in the Defenders and Defenders was over by like the mid 80s. Yeah. So by that point they were married. So you were right the first time. <laughs> yeah, Plus you have well. the whole Justice League thing with the squadron. Mm-hmm. They're all basically commentating or, I guess, poking fun at the Justice League with the their satellite above the Earth and everything. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of clearly them kind of pranking on DC here. So that was fun. It was. I thought it was pretty fun. Well, like I said, the thing for me that was the most interesting about reading this issue was the the way the, the type of story they were telling. I was like, wow, they were talking about this in the seventies already. Yep, and like, wasn't the Squadron Supreme always just kind of that meta thing where they were just like kind of affiliated with their government? I'm trying to like remember a little bit more about that team because aren't they? I think they're they're revamping them right now too. Possibly they do that periodically. I know there was the big miniseries in the 80s where basically they took over the government. Yeah, totally. So they were always doing this kind of meta, I don't know. I'm, I've always been a little bit curious about that team <laughs> and not quite known what their deal was. Yeah, like I, like you said, they're basically a version of the Justice League. Mm-hmm. By people who are like, the Justice League are jerks. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty Although good. I think I think Inglehart did write the Justice League later on, too, so that's kind of funny. Ah, uh, Inglehart. such a good time. I love him. He's really good for a lot of it, <laughs> for yeah. a lot of his Avengers run. Yeah, a lot of it's fun. Mm-hmm. All, All right. right. So well, is guess... the next one Daredevil? Yep. All right. So we've got Daredevil, The Man Without Fear, number 134, Two Against the Chameleon. And the name of that story actually is There's Trouble in New York City. It's written by Marv Wolfman, who you might know. Bob Brown and Jim Mooney do the art. And the letter is Joe Rosen. And the colorist is Michelle Wolfman. So... <laughs> I'm not sure what this comic was actually about. Like, I thought this was really good, too. But 
it was basically just Daredevil on a date and like trying to loosen up kind of. Yeah. <laughs> and then getting like attacked halfway through the date and realizing that he can never loosen up because he's Daredevil. Oh, the problems Matt has. He has a lot of problems in this one. And this is a weird take on him kind of because he's very repressed and doesn't have a lot of emotional fluidity in here. Like his girlfriend is trying really hard to get him to chill out and he's very serious about it. And I'm just like, when was he, when was Matt Murdock basically Cyclops? Because I guess he was here. That's, I didn't think about that, but yeah, you're right. He's basically a Cyclops like character there. Everything's very serious and urgent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's, he's very serious. I haven't really seen him. I don't know. I guess I have a little bit, but not so repressed, I guess. I guess that all went out the window after he started dating uh, Black Widow. <laughs> yeah. Well, plus, again, this issue also has stuff. I mean, that whole thing about the when they're on the date and she's talking about, like, the newspapers say one thing, TV says another. Like, I have no idea what to believe. Yeah. And again, uh, it's like, oh, I have no idea what you're talking about. The Iraq war thing, too. They were like, oh, no, we might go to war in Iraq. And I'm just like, oh, God. <laughs> wow. Things really did change after this. I will say that. Oh, yeah. So different. Yeah, it was an interesting issue, Two Against the Chameleon. Like, I was very confused, actually, because I thought that they were talking about the chameleon from Spider-Man. <laughs> well, that is him, yeah. It is? Okay, I was, I didn't even understand that. That's interesting. I never remembered him having this costume. What's going on? There are a lot of characters in the 70s who have bizarre costumes. Mm-hmm. If yep. I get a chance, I'll show you a picture of the Red Ghost from the 70s. Yeah, I need to see that. I don't think I remember him. They're also, the whole thing with the jester, like, editing the tape, editing video to make look like something else is happening. And they even, in, like, the next issue, there's a whole thing about uh, him using dead celebrities, doing movies with them to convince people of things. And I'm like, whoa, taking dead actors and celebrities and putting them in a movie now? (laughs) That's a crazy idea. That would never happen. Yeah, weird. This it was very strange <laughs> reading this comic. Um, definitely, just kind of like, wow, all right. Yeah, I sometimes wonder, like, maybe some of these writers need to like have written like a you know some kind of Nostradamus type book. Yeah, it's very H.G. Wells in a way, where you're just reading through and being like, well, I guess this is what the world turned into, and also always was. <laughs> yeah, which is scary in a couple levels. It really is. It's not great, but hopefully everybody who thinks that comics only just became political, like, because women wrote them, you know, like, maybe they they can chill out after they read literally any comic off of this uh, selection. Yeah, because, I mean, we're just doing a random month in 1976, and half them are like this. Yeah, seriously. Next up, we got Fantastic Four, number 171. Death is a Golden Gorilla by Roy Thomas, Rich Buckler, George Perez, and Joe Sinnott. Gore the Golden Gorilla tangles with the four inhabitants of the world's greatest comic magazine and waits to discover a shocking origin. Uh, the cover was Jack Kirby, John Romita Sr., and Joe Sinnott. And for a more in-depth listen to this ep- issue, go listen to Fantastic Cast episode 227. All right. Well, this one, you can definitely say, doesn't have anything political in it because there's really nothing about a giant gorilla attacking people. <laughs> it's a little political maybe for Sue Storm <laughs> oh, that's true okay can't argue that one 
But otherwise, yeah, because I mean, it's just giant gorilla, giant golden gorilla attacks, mm-hmm. and that's just weird. It says it on the cover. It's what you get in the comic. <laughs> There's no false advertising here. They are not beating around the bush. They are saying what they mean to say. Oh, it makes sense. This is the same year that the uh, remake of King Kong came out. Okay. The this is the I think what was it Faye Dunaway was in it. Is that I forget right? It. I don't remember who was in it. I just know this is the one with the uh, the twin towers. Huh. No, I guess maybe I never saw that one. I've only well, seen it like once. <laughs> I but like the original better. It probably did lead to them coming up with this idea, which is the same. <laughs> Jessica Lang. Mm-hmm. I just looked up real quick. It's Jessica Lang who's in it. Oh, okay. I was like, I think Faye Dunaway wasn't in a King Kong movie, but like you you never actually know. I'm always finding out new random things, so I had it wrong. It's Jeff yeah, Jessica Lang, Jeff Bridges, and Charles Grodin. Wow. What? <laughs> what an all-star cast. <laughs> But yeah, and this will actually, actually, ironically enough, this is one of the ones that actually has a most tie into Adam Warlock because the gorilla comes from Counter Earth. We'll find oh, out in yeah. the later issues. He's created by the High Evolutionary. I wasn't even thinking about that, but that's bonkers. Everything goes back to the High Evolutionary. He's everywhere. We'll never escape his eugenic spouting self. With his kettle head. I hate his kettle head so much. <laughs> the evolutionary is genuinely like one of the worst, but I see why he keeps popping up because you do need a character sometimes who's just responsible for everything. Yeah, and the no. X-Men, it's like Mr. Sinister, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, he is responsible. He is a, I mean, he tries to be nice occasionally, but yeah, he's mainly a jerk. I mean, he creates that whole planet and then goes, Oh, wait, it went a little wrong. Let me kill it all. Yeah, High Evolutionary did that? Yeah, he created that whole thing, and then he spends pretty much all eight issues of the original Warlock run basically saying to Warlock, come on, I know I promised you I wouldn't kill it, but can I just kill the planet? Can I just kill this thing? Please, please? Notice that eugenics, anything always leads back to genocide. (laughs) Like, it always is connected to some kind of genocide. High Evolutionary is no different. Yeah, it's like, I created this whole planet, 8 billion people. Oh, wow, that's amazing. I'm going to kill them all now. I'm done with that. Hey, high evolutionary, like, maybe don't. That's unethical. Maybe you should take an ethics class sometime, maybe. Like, no, no, I created it. It's okay, I'll destroy it. I'm into the string now. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) That guy. So the next one is Fantastic Four King Size Annual number 11. And... I don't know. It says the title basically is like, and now slash then the invaders, but it doesn't really have a title other than that. From what I can tell, they forewent any kind of titling on this one. They were like, it's an annual. What else do you need? That's all you need to know. It's the annual. It is. Maybe the credits are incredibly hard to read on this one. Um, Oh, I have. Oh, wait, I have that I if you need it. it. Oh, yeah, I okay. It. Cool. <laughs> By Phil Rache, I guess is how you'd say that. Joe Rosen is the letterer, and that guy lettered a bunch of comics during this oh, time. Yeah. Um, Roy Thomas, yeah, he's always, 
I, I totally forgot that he had anything to do with the Fantastic Four, um, which should tell you a little bit about how memorable <laughs> these issues are. But also, this is a tie-in because it has the invaders in it, and the invaders are all over the place during this era, apparently. Yes. Um, this is the first one we've mentioned so far, but I believe that they pop up in, like, what, one or two other issues. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep, they're definitely going to be in at least one other one. Roy Thomas was apparently pushing the invaders pretty hard during this time. because He I, was a big Golden Age fan. I mean, he started, because remember, he's a little older than most of the other creators. He, like, started reading in, like, 45, 46. Like, he was, like, a, a small child. Right, Yeah. That's why he did the All-Star Squadron afterwards at DC, because that was his big thing. Totally. Well, I wish that they could be um, more interesting stories. <laughs> but a lot of times whenever you read through these Invader stories, it's always just like, well, what are you going to do about the Nazis? You know, like, what? The, there's Nazis. They have a evil experiment thing going on. Like, we don't really have to face anything that, like, actual real-life Nazis ever did. And also, it's, like, some weird science thing instead. And then and then we have to... I don't think that he pops up in this issue, but he does pop up in one of these issues. But, like, the Red Skull's, like, always popping up in those stories. Of oh, yeah. Course. He's and in I the uh, Marvel premiere. God, he's the worst. Every time he shows up, I just, like, want to go for a walk. <laughs> like, a long walk. Well, to be fair, if you said, oh, I love the Red Skull, he's awesome, I probably would be hanging up right now. Yeah, it would be so fair you... enough. But also, there's, like, villains that you can like, kind of, and then there's villains that you're just like, good, this guy out of here. <laughs> like, I hate him so much. I have Illusionaries one for me. I'm going to say Red Skull's one. <laughs> Well, I mean, that kind of works, too, though. I mean, that way you have the villains that are like, oh, this is interesting. Like, a lot of t- for a lot of people, at least a lot of times, Magneto is usually one of them. Totally. So, and know, he sometimes is that guy, too. Sometimes he's genocide guy. Like, sometimes he, yeah. like, tries to kill all the humans, so. <laughs> but there's also got to be the villains that you're just like, oh, good, I can't wait to watch him get his face plot beat in. Yeah. You know, just punch this of, guy out. Yeah, I kind of just, like, want... Red Skull to like go away for a really long time for right now, but it is really nice to still see him get beaten up regularly in the comics. I won't lie, but he's not even in this issue. He's not even in this issue. It's just another like madcap Nazi adventure where all of these like World War Two era heroes meet up with the Fantastic Four. It's leading up to like something else soon with like the Liberty Legion, but. Not not too much happens here, except for the FF being buds with some Nazi punchers. Yeah, this is, uh, they go back in time on this one. Yeah, it's good, you know, I'll still read it, but... Yeah, well, it's not their best annual, but... <laughs> again, the fun part is when the Nazis show up and they're like, We beat these guys 30 years ago, what are you doing here now? Go away! Yeah, seriously. Alright, well, let's get to something non-Nazi-ish. Yes. Because we're going to go back to them soon enough anyway. Yes. We have very little time (laughs) until it's back to talking about Nazis. Um, This issue, I'm excited for you to say. I like this one. This was cool. The Incredible Hulk 200, An Intruder in the Mind, by Len Wein, Sal Buscema, and Joe Staten. Doc Samson shrinks the Hulk down so he can enter Glenn Talbot's brain and try to restore his memories. 
While in Talbot's mind, the Hulk is attacked by a host of former friends and foes. Uh, cover was John Romita Sr. and Rich Buckler. And just a warning for anybody, if you have any knowledge of science, psychiatry, uh, <laughs> medical things or anything, throw them out the window. Yeah, they're not going to they help you. They have nothing to do with what happens here. No. In general, Leonard Sampson has nothing to do <laughs> with how you should actually practice any kind of psychology. Basically, no. Well, let's see. The best way to deal with your mental block, we're going to shrink the Hulk and put him <laughs> in your head to have and him punch it out. And I have to, I'm not 100% on this, but Glenn Talbot, isn't he the person who marries Betty Ross for a second? Yeah, they're married at this point. Yeah, so you're literally sending the Hulk into his ex-girlfriend's husband's brain <laughs> is that what's happening <laughs> like i guess we know who leonard sampson ships yeah he ships them hard you can tell it's very cute um he's like come on hulk and Betty. <laughs> he's like come on if i get rid of talbot oops oh well well hulk stomped on his brain sorry it's so weird during this time anyway because you're just like oh betty like you'd be so much better off if you could just go marry some guy that's not the hulk <laughs> You'd have such a better life, you know, like, I, I, it's just so depressing kind of to, like, watch her during this time because she kind of tries to get out of it and then doesn't and can't and, like, really cares about Bruce still. And you're just like, oh, God. Yeah, and her oh, option is then thing. marrying the guy who's basically her father. Yeah, his mustache even. You're just like, good God, Betty, like, you've got some stuff that you need to work out. Yeah, it's like it's like your father has problems. Yeah, and so do you sometimes a little bit. Like this whole thing is very weird, but also I really like her. So I don't know. It was fun to see her as the harpy in this issue. For oh second. yeah, that's right. Oh yeah, she just like yells about how like oh last time I beat you, this time I'll destroy you. And I was like yes, <laughs> love the actually, harpy. That actually that harpy issue when she first becomes a harpy was like one of the first earliest comics I ever had. Oh, that's so cool. I love that comic. It's it's like during that time, I think a lot of there's tons of stuff where I'm just like, you know, I mean, from a feminist perspective, this really is offensive. But also it's so good because Betty gets to actually just kind of like punch the Hulk in the face. And you're just yeah. like, I get that you guys are like turning one of the chillest female characters into a raging harpy and like that can't be good of you guys to do but also at the same time she punches hulk in the face it's awesome like she's really cool in that issue and she's really cool in this issue <laughs> this yeah. was really like i love like the hulk i love like how he uh, is here really trying to work through stuff you know in this issue and he's facing a lot of his fears like i thought that that was really fun but as usual, I'm very much here for Betty. I thought that she was really good in this issue, even though she like barely shows up. Yeah, she's only in bits and pieces. But, yeah, no, I like it's weird, though, reading this because most of my Hulk reading was later on when Peter David was writing it. So mm -hmm. he did. Now, granted, this was 20 years ago. So if I went back and looked at it now, it might look different, you know, from a perspective of 2019. Oh, but yeah. I, know, I remember he did a lot of stuff with Betty trying to make her her own person as opposed to just Hulk's wife. 
Right. And Peter David, very hit and miss when it comes to pretty much everything, but at least he did make an effort. He was like stuck with this character. So he definitely needed to like make her be fun to write, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. Cause I, I remember there was like something where she said, I actually need to go get myself a life. I can't just be here waiting for him. Yeah, totally. I have to do something. I have to have my own life and things to do while he's out running around with his pants torn. Yeah. It's, it's pretty interesting. Her, uh, how she kind of evolves and then kind of doesn't, you know, like it's, it's very interesting to watch Betty over a long period of time. Oh, at least they, you know, did something good there or at least interesting. And I thought the whole story was fun. I mean, Leonard Sampson having to kind of face his own, you know, BS was kind of good. Like Hulk having to like challenge the things that scare him. All of that I thought was really interesting. Glenn, no role whatsoever. Glenn was just out the whole time. Glenn's role there was to be the scenery. Yes, the pretty scenery. He's the pretty boy. I'm the setting. This is I'm where everything happens. <laughs> and I don't need to say anything and I don't need to do anything. <laughs> yeah, that was a weird one. All right, you get Iron Fist. Yeah, woo, this was rough. Um so is it called is it pronounced Skimitar? That's what I'm going with. Okay, cool. That's probably I don't know how correct that is and I should probably look that up. So it's Iron Fist number five, and the name of this story is Wind Slays the Scimitar, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. This is an early team-up with Chris Claremont and John Byrne, who we're going to see in the X-Men quite a bit later on. The anchor's last name I am certainly going to absolutely butcher, but it's Frank Chiamonte? Chiamonte? I always go with Chiamonte. Yeah, great. Good. That sounds good to me. Um, yeah. Also, Joe Rosen is once again the letterer on this, and Phil Rache, maybe, or Rache, colorist. Marv Wolfman edits it, if you need to know that. So, um, yeah, this was an interesting one. <laughs> Iron Fist really doesn't age too well, does it? Like, you look back on it and you're just like, yeah, they should have done a lot of different things with this. Um, yeah, when you try and cash on a, a craze, geez, it either that, looks bad later on or it's like Dazzler where you do disco three years after disco, you know, pretty much dies. Yeah, which weirdly, like, is really good to read now. <laughs> like, a lot of those Dazzler comics are really good. Whereas, like, uh, in the beginning, you know, they it just didn't do very well as a series. <laughs> yeah, this one, you know, Iron Fist, just in general, I'm going to say, has some, like, issues. There's, like, white guy in the, in the role. It's very strange. Uh just a lot of like exoticism I guess through this whole issue like not really anything else happens other than really blatant exoticism of other cultures and uh yeah it was just kind of rough I didn't really like this one okay How'd yeah we had about it <laughs> it's all right but I also read it a while ago we did an episode on Angar the Screamer so we more read it for Angar at that point oh yeah 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 okay I can see that his crazy 70s, you know, hippie 70s outfit and everything. Mm-hmm. You know, I was more, we were more focusing on that when I read this issue. But yeah, I mean, it's weird what, reading these things back then. I mean, I, I try and remember 
not that I try and excuse things, but I try and put myself in like the place of these people. Like as much as we like to make, you know, poke fun at the Stanley's beds, science and from, you know, knowledge of science. Right. Magnets don't do all the things he says they do. It's not like they had Google where they could just, well, what do they do? Let's find out. So again, here at this point in time, it's, you know, the Kung Fu thing is a craze. People are interested. Uh Actually getting interested. So I try, I try to look at the positive things. Even though there's yeah. negatives. Like, okay, people are interested in this thing from another culture. Well, it's great. Let's do what we can. Of course, most of the people working in the industry weren't part of that culture and really had no knowledge of it. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. It's, and, yeah. And I don't want to make it seem like this was the only offensive kung fu stereotype. <laughs> that but it's the one we're reading now, so it's the one we're talking about. There was many of them, certainly, at the time. Oh. And there was a lot of misinformation, I would say, definitely. It was very... Uh, normalized, I'd say, to have that kind of exoticism around things. But also, this was not a good issue. <laughs> so well, that was that my too. thing, was being like, well, if there was like something to hold on to here, but there's not really a lot going on. So I think you might slightly like the next issue, I think it is, better, because that's when they have the brainwashed Colleen Wing go after him. And you you know it's like sometimes like when they're using you now bringing the female characters into like the new mediums the TV shows and the movies mm-hmm. if they're doing these stories you know based on stories back then they do have to change some stuff up just from the blatant you know blatant sexism in the way it was back then where it's like well you're the girl so you're gonna get hit once and knock out yeah yeah and they're trying to give them more now uh-huh. and with Colleen Wing you're reading these and going they really have to change much for the TV shows now for Colleen yeah Colleen and- was awesome back then. And you see kind of how uh, Claremont is trying, definitely, you know, like I haven't read the next issue, but I did like the setup for the next issue where Colleen Wing is basically just going to trash Danny. (laughs) And basically, at the very least, you're like, okay, she's an equal to Mm -hmm. him, fighting abilities and everything. If it wasn't for the Iron Fist ability, you know, that it basically would be best to draw. Totally, yeah. And Claremont, you know, once again, has been fairly good about that over time. Like, there's a lot of missteps, too. But but yeah, oh. he, for his time, he was knocking it out of the park when it came to female representation. Well, I mean, how many other comic, major comic series that were the most popular, you know, in the early 80s would have the black woman as the leader? Totally, yeah. And have I mean, her- she's in charge. And yeah, totally. I, I absolutely agree with that. Like, I think that like he did a lot of good stuff. Yeah. This not might not have been his shining, <laughs> no. shining achievement. Like some of these things, I, it's like, oh, this is them test learning how to do this, how to get better. Totally. Like Roy Thomas of the Invaders. That's probably why the Invaders barely lasted thirty issues, and All Star Squadron went to like seventy, and would have gone longer if it wasn't for Crisis happening, and basically screwing it all up mm-hmm. you know he figured out how to do that better <laughs> all right so iron man 87 the icy hand of death by bill matlow george tusca and vince coletta covered by frank giacoya and ron wilson our armored avengers gripped in the icy hand of death as he continues to face the fiendish foe named blizzard blizzard got a better costume than he had in the flashback at least Mm-hmm. His his flashback costume was a little rough. Yeah. Jack Frost, which we'll meet another Jack Frost later. <laughs> I'm not sure what to say about this one. I mean, it was entertaining. Uh-huh. But I really don't have much to say about it. 
Yeah. Just blizzard attacks and that's it. This was like very much the formula of Iron Man for a really long time was basically like Tony Stark, like clenching his jaw, like while Pepper Potts and Happy Hogan hang out or whatever. (laughs) And then like, kind of like being like, well, I'm ready to go have a fight now. And then he goes and like punches the villain for a while. And it's like therapy, therapy is an option. Um, (laughs) You could always do that maybe instead, but also I would have punched Jack Frost too. So I kind of am on Tony's side with this one. Um, He's mad at Tony for business stuff, which a lot of Tony Stark's villains were during this whole time period. Yeah, it was kind of just a standard Iron Man issue, I guess, for for like this era. Yeah, I did like him actually trying to think of uh, an inventive way to beat the guy, as opposed to just punching or blasting him. He did use his intel- intelligence and like you know the technology to beat him instead of that. So that was nice. And yeah. you also forget, especially because of the movies, that it wasn't always Tony and Pepper. Mm-hmm. It was almost never Tony and Pepper actually. <laughs> yeah. They barely really hooked up that much. In fact, really, like, the first hundred issues or so was him just, like, being mad about how, like, he honorably, like, walked away from his relationship with Pepper Potts and then she, like, hooked up with Happy and it's like, dude, well, what do you want from her? (laughs) Like, she can't, she can't read your mind, bud. You got to work this stuff out on your own. But this was, like, Tony's working it out time. Like, he's kind of still, like, a rich boy business guy and kind of trying to keep up that, like, secret identity still and just not really being himself, so. Yeah, but at least it was entertaining. Unfortunately, you know, it's poor Bill Mantlo writing this. I feel sad sad whenever I see his name. Yeah, fair enough. Somebody who should definitely, like have gotten way more props i'd say considering how much of this this era he was writing creator of rocket raccoon yeah or co-creator and unfortunately i mean did you know about the thing with his uh, brain injury yeah i, sure. I heard about that okay i wasn't sh- i wasn't sure who knows what so yeah it's pretty, it's pretty upsetting um and you can donate to him though is that correct uh they still have like I believe that I saw that his brother is running a fundraiser. I think it might still be going on, so thank you for reminding me of that. I'm going to look for that, and if I can find it, I will put that in the show notes. Yes, please. And then also they do have, what is it, the Hero Initiative, I believe, which is a organization that just always is trying to look out for um, comic creators that no longer have work and they, like, for whatever reason, aren't able to work, you know. Yeah, the uh, older creators who didn't have as much of the uh, rights or uh, rights to the characters or uh, points or whatever it was called, where they would yeah. make money off the reprints. Yeah, and they a lot of those folks who really built that whole era definitely have suffered a lot, and it really sucks. So if you can give them some money, that'd be fantastic. Yep, I'm you know I'm gonna put a link for Hero Initiative in there too. Yes, That's a good point. All right, good. All right, so next up, your favorite. (laughs) Yes, I had a great time. Um, Marvel premiere number 30, featuring the Liberty Legion. And the name of the story is, Hey Ma, They're Blitz in the Bronx, which is a a Roy Thomas title, if I've ever heard one. This is also drawn by Don Heck, who is amazing. So it's really nice to see him in here. 
It is inked by Vince Coletta. It's good old either Phil Rache or Phil Raish is back on colors. And John, Constan- or Cast- <laughs> John Costanza is the letterer. And he's another letterer that was like all over the place during this time. Oh, yeah. I saw his name everywhere when I'm looking at these things. Love this guy. Uh, so <laughs> this issue was definitely another like World War II era, like fighting the Nazis kind of red skulls right on the cover with a big swastika in the middle of his chest yelling about how he's defeated the invaders. And then the Liberty Legion is behind him yelling about how check us out. We're like the second stringers. We're going to take you out. Yeah, it's not Captain America, not The Flash, not Hawkman, not Wonder Woman. Yes. And then, of course, like, Bucky has a whole thing in here where the Red Skull, apparently, at some point, we don't know because we haven't read this entire story. Like, this is just one random issue. I believe that there's, like, a midpoint that we needed <laughs> to This is, like, the last this. part, it said, of a story from the Invaders. Right. So we didn't, we don't know everything. Um, I don't know everything. I didn't go back and read this because, once again, this is... Really just the same typical thing you're going to read if you read pretty much any Golden Age thing. You know, that's like, they're fighting the Nazis. Science, like, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Somebody <laughs> monologues about fascism for a while, like, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It was like, you know, the guy who has <laughs> just the full outfit, you know. Red Skull is definitely wearing the full outfit. Um yeah, so the Liberty Legion is very bizarre characters, I thought. Uh, these are all really weird. You can tell that they're absolutely second stringers because you have, like, a Captain America knockoff. There's, like, I believe Miss America is one of these characters. Mm-hmm. Before, before there was, like, you know, America Chavez, which is, like, close the book on that character because America Chavez is the only one now forever. Um, there actually also was a Miss America at D.C. That's right, yeah. They, they both I mean, had one bunch of characters i think that there was like public domain characters that were named that too um i wouldn't be surprised they didn't try too hard on miss america like any of the iterations of miss america i think didn't i don't even know i was like gonna be like stars and stripes liberty bell like you just have like one billion of that character and they're usually not very well fleshed out because they're just there to wear a flag and be mad at fascists which is Okay, um, good. I also am mad at fascists, so I guess I can get behind it. Um, the nationalism is a little weird, but you have the wizard, of course, who for a little while was the dad. Like They thought it was the dad of uh, Pietro and Wanda, um, Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch. Yeah, he was the, the second dad or first dad, I forget which. I think he was the first dad, and then I think it was uh, Magneto, but then it changed again after that, but then it went back to Magneto, but now it's not Magneto. Well, there <laughs> also was, uh, there also was a, I believe it was a gypsy guy who was, who they thought was their real father after the, the wizard. A Romany guy. Yeah, um, that's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he uh, I forgot that, like, what that guy's name was. Um, whatever, the kindly couple, you know, the kindly impoverished couple that raised them on the side of a mountain or whatever. <laughs> like, yeah, I want to say it looked like it looked his name looks like Django or something. Yeah. Oh, totally. It might be Django, actually. That's totally possible. Um, They had a character in here called 
the thin man who I don't even understand what's happening with him. Like sometimes parts of his body are like thin, like a piece of paper. I'm not sure what practical effect that could possibly have in a fight, but I also feel like maybe the wizard isn't that practical. Um, Captain America comes in writing on Namor's back at a certain point, and I'm just like, there's like a million fan fictions about this already. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was like, you two, I didn't know you were friends like that. Um, Toro's in this, I forgot about that guy. He like just shows up wearing like bikini briefs, basically. Um, <laughs> all he ever wore was bikini briefs and boots. Yeah. Or just a full body costume, and it's like, and you're gonna wear shorts. It's weird how none of them are really dressed for the weather. Um, <laughs> like, Bucky is, like, way overdressed at all times. Toro's wearing, like, nothing. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's all over the place. Um, yeah, and then there's was, just a random guy with wings. I don't even really know who that guy is. Red, I only know, I know who he is, Red Raven, but that's it. And But, yeah, they weren't really, for an, an issue that was trying to introduce this team, because they say in the back when they get to the letters page, it's like, would you like to see the Liberty Legion in their own book? It's like, well, what do they do? Like, okay, I'm guessing Patriot is like a Captain America type guy. He could just fight. Wizard's fast. But it's like, yeah, like Thin Man, I guess he's a sort of stretchy guy. Blue Diamond, Maybe. like, what does he do? Is he just is he just strong? Is he invulnerable? I know Miss America flies because we see her fly, but what else does she do? Yeah. Like, yeah. Very vague. And how do these people exist in a, the same room as the Red Skull without him just straight up murdering them all? Like, I don't want to see Miracle Man or like a Jeff Johns Infinite Crisis kind of situation breaking out here. But like, oh god, <laughs> yeah. Also, that's... just like, aren't they all probably dead if they like hung out with like, you know? It's like I feel like these they're they're not really bringing enough of an a game to this scenario to be able to survive it but i don't know i will say this for them two of them have actually made it to live action is that right which ones the wizard sort of was in season two of jessica jones oh i didn't know that okay did you watch that season i watched part of it i haven't watched the whole thing though he's in the beginning he's the crazy guy who uh lives in his apartment alone and looks like somebody who really rarely leaves his apartment yeah and sounds right got experimented on and like has some vague super speed he dies early on yeah it sounds like kind of what they did with him in the vision and scarlet witch series where he was like aging out kind of not totally in control of himself weird (laughs) weird stuff going on with his identity like but yeah wow okay i didn't know that and the patriot at least as in his secret his real identity i forget that his real name but he was in, I think it's season three or four of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Mm-hmm. He, uh, Jason O'Mara played him. Okay, that's awesome. So I'll give them credit for that. Too. A couple of them actually made live action. I mean, we don't have the, you know, there's no Namor movie yet or in a movie or Android Human Torch, so. Yeah, that's true. They have that over those guys. That's true. Liberty Legion. <laughs> And so we end up here with Thor, number 248. Yay. There Shall Come Revolution by Len Wein, Marv Wolfman, John Buscema, and Tony DiZanuga. Thor and his companions return to a hostile Asgard to free Odin from his madness. Covered by John Buscema, Joe Sinnott, and Dan Crespi. Now, this is an issue where the cover does not really t- is not really what's going on. Because this fight with the storm giant takes about half a page. 
yep, that's not the story <laughs> at all. When we got to that, I'm like, oh, okay, this must be the rest of the issue. Nope, nope, nope. It's over pretty quick. No, it's, o- it's over very quickly. Um, but this was a pretty good issue, I thought. This there was entertaining. Was really good art. The art is great. This is like that time period where like the Warriors 3 were just kind of uh, Thor's constant bumbling sidekicks, sort of. And they were really funny and kind of amusing through this whole thing. Creating the traffic jam. <laughs> they definitely started out by just standing in the middle of the road in New York City and everybody losing their minds. <laughs> Which is funny. It's nice. I was glad to see it. I was like, oh, this is like carefree Thor whenever he was like a young dude kind of and like hanging out with Jane and like totally his like, you know, we can look back on this and be like, oh, he still has like his hammer and his eye and both of his arms. <laughs> He's not so uh, so much stuff has happened to him. He hasn't like lived through the death of his people yet or like been the literal replacement for odin or any of that and yet this is at a point where they actually had some progression for jane because she's not like in those early issues where she's just pining over thor yeah she's good in this i thought yeah no she's awesome you're taking me we're going together like i'm gonna go to asgard with you and he's like no and she's like yeah (laughs) i really am and then she's the one that comes up with the plan she's like they're like they meet the other people where everyone has to meet you know say who they are Mm -hmm. (laughs) i love that Mm-hmm. And then they're like, okay, now what do we do? And she's the one that's like, okay, you got to rescue the vizier. That's what you have to do. Totally. And they that's kind of first step. They made a mention of how like Sif's spirit was like somehow now affiliated with Jane. And I guess that that could be like an easy explanation for why she's more interesting here. But I just think that she just got way more interesting around this time. And it didn't take, it didn't continue to be that way (laughs) unfortunately there was a lot of breaks where she's just kind of gone from the comic and she shows up and she's married to a different guy and like you know all the soap opera stuff but this is definitely the jane foster that we see you know someday becoming thor like she takes control she's like part of the whole thing no definitely all that other stuff i'm sure does happen and maybe like you said maybe the personality that we're seeing in here is because mostly because of Sif. I don't know. I really mm-hmm. haven't read this era of Thor at all. Right. So I can't say. But at least as far as reading just this issue goes, you can definitely see where Jason Aaron would be like, oh, that'd be a good idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a good issue for her, I think. And I've, I always like Thor. Like, I've read all of the Thor comics, which took a really long time. I always really liked Jane Foster as far as this era goes. <laughs> like, yeah, well, this a lot is better of, than that early era. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And better just in for a lot of the stories that were coming out this year. You know, if we like look across like what we see from the female characters from any of these issues, we really don't see a lot of... Um, <laughs> not a lot of... I mean, even in like the Marvel premiere issue, like... Miss America is like mad because the team basically reduces her to a sexist role in order to like beat the other guys, right? So yeah, they they use that. She's like, "You wouldn't hit a girl, would you?" Yeah, <clears throat> and she's mad about it. She doesn't like it at all. And I thought that that was interesting. Um, yeah, like, again, like earlier, like in Hell Hellcat, at least got to do something. I mean, she got mm-hmm. trapped, and she still was, you know, an equal fight in that team with the beast, even though she was trapped in that glue thing, whatever. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was, it, if you like look at it just as a whole month, I feel like there's just like not a lot of like women doing any cool stuff other than, you know, we got like a little bit, but not too much. Oh, then, yeah. I think J- Jane kind of like wins here. <laughs> like Jane kind of like held it up the hardest, I think. Let's see, what do we have? Avengers, this Daredevil. Yeah, well, Heather does nothing but get knocked out. She was, yeah, and and is kind of like a weird character in that she's like, I'm going to get you to loosen up and like all this stuff. And it's like, uh. Yeah, I, I'm just looking at the covers real quick just to refresh myself on the edition ones we read. But yeah, I would have to say uh, for female characters, Jane definitely does win with, I would give Hellcat the second. Yep, totally. And then like, uh, <laughs> it's not too good after that. No, nah, because like it's I like, said bit parts after yeah. that so like i said colleen's better in the next issue than this one she doesn't get right. to do anything really it's the next issue you get to see her do some cool stuff yeah totally um oh, this one, no but who had the most character growth <laughs> i would say maybe the hulk actually out of this whole this whole chunk of comics i think that the hulk maybe because he got to like actually encounter something that was really personal whereas most of the rest of these comics were just punch and fights as they were basically back then uh, yeah, a lot of the time, I'd say, yeah. I think that, like, the Hulk got, like, the deepest. And then, I don't know, what else? What else ties these comics together? Kind of uh, weird to read everything in this way. Like, I kind of wondered how it would feel uh, <laughs> if you were, like, you know, say, like, 15 or something whenever these comics came out and you were reading, like, a stack of them like we just did out of context, kind of. I was like, yeah, I would probably, like, just be over the moon for this stuff. I would, I think I would really have loved all of these comics probably. Um, and now it's kind of interesting to read because I always think of like more modern, you have these comics that are in like sagas and arcs and stuff like that. Whereas I'll be like, Oh, back in the day, whenever it was just like each issue had like a self-contained story. And then I was reading these and being like, that really wasn't true back then, was it? Like, we have this kind of weird lens that we view the past through, but I think that all of these had ongoing arcs that, you know, pieces were missing for me, and I didn't know quite what was going on. They all were, pretty much. I mean, Iron, Iron Man was, like, part two of one. Liberty yep. Legion was, like, the last part. The Avengers was in the middle of a story. Mm-hmm. Iron Fist in the middle. Thor is, like, Thor is the closest for it, really, because it's, the, you know, whatever adventure you had before is over, and this is the beginning of a new one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, it was interesting for me on that level, I think, just to be like, oh, I guess that's not really a very new development at all. <laughs> like, I, they didn't used to collect them in trade paperbacks, you know, but like they still were kind of writing these like ongoing stories. Well, keeps you, go- keeps you in for the next issue now because you got to read the next one. It's not just I read one and that's nice. Yeah, totally. It's like, um, I guess what happens next. Yeah, I'm trying to think, like, which of these. I would have definitely bought the next issue of Avengers. I definitely would have bought the next issue of the Hulk. I would have bought the next issue of Thor. And I think that those would have been my chosen ones. I don't think I would have revisited the Fantastic Four after this issue. But I would have probably soon after. And the same with Daredevil. I'm like, pretty soon this gets pretty interesting. But right here, it wasn't wasn't too good. Yeah, I'm not sure how much the Fantastic Four-ish regular issue would make me want to read the next one. Yeah. Although there is a gorilla, so that does help. Yeah. But the after the annual one, I would be interested to see what the th- I was kind of interested to see what the thing was doing because mm-hmm. that lab was leading into like a soul thing story, mm-hmm. and he's always fun. He is. He's a really fun character. I like him a lot. 
even though this is that weird period where he had the suit on. Yeah, very strange. Yeah, it's weird to see him take his head off. <laughs> yeah, and he wasn't quite to the point. I feel like one of the things that makes him get really fun and interesting, one of the things that for me helped Ben Grimm click really well was later whenever he starts being friends with like She-Hulk and stuff. And like they just like hang out and kind of like have this like hilarious low-key flirting and stuff. They go out for drinks together and like all of that kind of stuff. Being able to see him out of context, like not around the Fantastic Four was kind of when I started being like, oh, I like the thing. He's cool. Yeah, he's a character most people can like. Mm -hmm. Even if they don't like the Fantastic Four, most people like the thing. Yeah, I think that he's probably the most likable. (laughs) Oh, he definitely is. Until Valeria. Now I think Valeria is, but... So this was our month of June 1976. I hope you enjoyed joining us on this. Uh, Sarah, thank you again for joining us. And just once again, remind people where they can find you. So I can be followed on Twitter uh, at Sarah Century and on Instagram as well. And I am just all over the place right now. You can follow Bitches on Comics, which is the podcast that I'm doing. And then there is also my webcomic that I'm doing, which is The Volatile Anesthetic. That has its own webpage, and I'm guessing there will be a lot of links to those oh, <laughs> at yeah. the bottom of this at the bottom of this episode. I go link crazy, so yeah, there'll be yes. Those. All right, thanks again, Sarah, and uh, stay tuned. There's more coming. Yeah. Now we're going to do the first of two feedbacks. We're going to do this episode since this is a double episode. Right now, we're going to be covering the feedback from episode 98, the Infinity Relativity Part Four, Professor T. On Facebook, the post for that episode was liked and shared by Mark Adams, GeekPod, Dan Ostroff, Gene Hendricks, Pat Sampson, Bill Bear, Tim Price, Hal Jordan, Michael Myers, Mark's Mess Podcasts, Darren and Ruth Sutherland, Laura Campbell Kennison, Jesse Starcher, Lowell E. Jackson, and Tom Allen. On Twitter, it was liked and retweeted by Trucker Talk, Jason Snick Venable, Brian Z, Jeffrey Brown, What Would Cap Do, Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Paul Showens, The Legion of Substitute Podcasters, Doc Strange, Tim Price, and CA34. And once again, it is time for me to thank a few people on Tumblr who have been following our page on there and try and say these Tumblr screen names that were obviously never meant to be said out loud. Here we go. Lloyd R. Manga. Dan Lee Gapswan, Tsutunes, Tsutunes, T-S-U-J Tunes, that's Jeffrey Brown from Twitter. Sorry, Jeffrey, I have no idea how to pronounce that. Crazy Peacock, and Ro Kelly. Whew. All right, that's enough of that for now, at least. And we're back. That's right. This is episode 100. This is a double-sized episode. We are not doing just one issue. We're doing two. Double your power, double your fun, double your soul gem vampire sucky goodness. Damn right. Man. You're here. What? That vampire gem really sucks. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I regret nothing. <laughs> I know you don't. But this is this nice little two-part story. So we've got the second part, Beware the Sinister Secret of the Star Thief. Yeah, it works out very well. We're doing these two issues. For, this 100 is right when we're doing these two issues. This works perfectly. 
So yeah, we're going to get a whole story here in one episode. So this is Homecoming. And I guess I should drop in a synopsis then for this part real quick. Warlock number 14. Homecoming. Layouts and story, Jim Starlin. Finished art and coloring, Steve Lealoha. Lettering, Tom Orsowski. Editing, Marv Wolfman. Cover art, Jim Starlin. Adam Warlock is under attack by a horde of winged creatures. Perhaps the best way to describe them is demon monkeys. Even his soul gem is just able to keep them at bay, but is unable to steal their souls. Eventually, he does defeat them, and they fade away to the nothingness that Starthief created them from. This is the second elemental battle that Starthief has pitted against Adam. The first was Earth, last issue, and this was now Air. Starthief does not give Adam much time to breathe or plan, as elemental test number three is ready. This one is water, and takes the form of a giant shark swimming through space. Despite his mightiest blows, Adam is barely able to knock the creature back, let alone stun or destroy it. He hopes to be able to fly away fast enough to get some breathing room, but it is almost as fast as him, until hope arrives in the form of a midget comet. Adam is able to fly in front of it, barely, but the shark is not quite that fast, and shark and comet collide. Starthief is amazed that Adam was able to survive this, though he's apparently lost consciousness. Or has he? It was a trick to get Starthief unawares, and now Adam was able to use his soul gem to steal a piece of his soul, something that really ticks Starthief off. And so begins elemental test number four, fire, in the form of a flaming giant. However, this form speaks to Adam as if it was Starthief, and Adam is able to use a giant boulder to smash its head and brain. Starthief was inside of this creation, but was able to escape before it was destroyed. He congratulates Adam on his victory, and even starts to monologue a bit, until he realizes that there is no one else there. Adam Warlock is gone. Taking advantage of the distraction, Adam is sped away to a black hole. He hopes to use the memories and ultra senses he gained from the Magus to be able to use the black hole as a wormhole shortcut to Earth. Back on Earth, Starthief's nurse, Tom Voskin, is now fully free of Barry's, aka Starthief's, mental control, and plans to use that freedom. Meanwhile, just a few light years away, Adam exits from a nearby black hole and is pleased to see how close to Earth he is. He is less pleased to see Starthief there, but like he was last issue, Starthief is not at all worried about what Adam might do once he reaches Earth. Adam pours on the speed and overshoots the entire solar system? Confused, he heads back and can now see why Starthief was not concerned about him. He is now a giant, intangible phantom. The Earth is no bigger than his fingernail. Starthief explains that it is the expanding universe theory. The theory speculates that the atoms of all spacenum are constantly expanding or drifting further apart. He says that Adam is proof that this expansion is not uniform throughout the universe. Whatever part of space Adam had been in before must have been expanding at a faster pace than the Milky Way. Starthief now gloats. There is nothing Adam can do to him on Earth, because it is impossible for Adam to go to Earth. But Adam is not worried. His senses make him realize that the situation is about to correct itself. As back on Earth, a clearly disturbed Tom Voskin is now free to punish Barry for being bad. So bad. He pulls out a gun and... In the end, 
Tom is taken away, with no one realizing that his crazed rants about saving the world are actually true, and Adam Warlock is left in space, alone and homeless. come from? Well, when a mommy ranger and daddy ranger love each other very No. Okay, so there's this Japanese superhero show called Super Sentai, and it's been going strong since the 1970s. It wasn't until the 90s they started bringing it to America as Power Rangers. So there are a lot of Power Rangers that we never saw? From Japan. (laughs) Yep, and guess what? I'm gonna podcast about them. You are? Can I help? Sure. Can I be silly and make random jokes? <laughs> sure, why not? And random Undertale references? I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeet! Super Silly Sentai, an audio commentary podcast for the first Sentai series, Himitsu Sentai Go Ranger. Available Saturdays from JohnReadsComics.com. All right, that was the synopsis. Editing so easy. It is. Until you do the editing. (laughs) So um, sometimes I'm flying through space and the Wicked Witch of the West sends flying monkeys after me. Yeah, don't you hate when that happens? Yeah. They they, they try to stay me from my appointed destiny. Come out slipping out of the darkness. Yeah, they, I was trying to figure out what they look like, but you're right. They really do look like kind of like a mixture of bats and bat monkeys. The faces are kind of nondescript and the bodies just, you know, humanoid muscle bodies. But they made me think of that. And, you know, he tries to take their souls away with his soul gem, but it doesn't work because they don't have any souls. And I hate that. I hate whenever I try to steal your soul with my soul gem and I can't do it because you don't have a soul. That's a little unfair. I mean, I have the soul gem for a purpose. Right. What's the point of a soul gem if you can't suck souls out? It's not even a very fashion accessory at that point. But that's why I feel about my mind gem. It's useless half the time. <laughs> that's why you keep it between... Well, never mind. Um, no, no, that's a space gem. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. I'm in the 90s with my own read-through, and I just got recently to the reveal of who has the reality gem. Oh, Yeah. For all of the early 90s, so that was pretty cool. I was kind of expecting it, but only for like an issue or two before that. Oh, good. So they did it's, a jo- good job then. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, but that's, that, that's, you know, years down the road. Warlock's going to die a couple of times before then. Yeah. Yeah, him, Thanos. <laughs> Everybody, pretty much. So he's, you know, fighting off the, the Pip the Troll flying monkey people. And um, the Star Thief starts talking to him with his Psylocke eyes. And he says, congratulations, Adam, on surviving the second little elemental struggle I devised for you. Your claim of being a true warlock of fire, air, water, and earth has thus far proven true. And I'm just like, is he like in a video game doing like an element quest? Basically, yeah. You didn't know that? I guess. Starlin predicted that years ago before it happened. You, You know what? You know what this is? What? Water, earth, fire, air. Long ago, the six Infinity Gems existed in harmony. Then everything changed when the Star Thief attacked. Only the Warlock, master of all four elements, could stop him. No, no, no Avatar, the last time render? Oh, I have not seen that. 
Oh, dude, Avatar The Last Airbender. If you want a cartoon epic, Avatar The Last Airbender. I mean, all I know about it is it was a cartoon and then there was a movie and there were issues with the movie. There were definitely issues with the movie. We don't have to talk about the movie. Um, but you should definitely watch all three seasons of the cartoon, and that's your job now. Okay. I'll take that as a recommendation. I actually yes. thought you were going for a Captain at Planet thing. Oh, no. He is our hero, though. He's going to take pollution down to zero. So, if he's the warlock of all those four, would that mean Pip is heart? Pip is fart. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was too easy. <laughs> And yet accurate. Yep. <laughs> I am not wrong. No, you're not. So um, he's thinking about the twisted mind of the star thief. And we change scenes to the uh, to the hospital. Yes. And we get a, a recap of star thief's origin, which Adam does not know. Because right. I double checked issue 13. He doesn't tell him this. So this is just how does. The only maybe is when he used his soul gem to find out where this thing was cut power was coming from that was stealing stars and found out it comes from the mind of a single earth man maybe he got the download then but they don't say anything about that and i mean later on he does steal a little bit of his soul of star thief's soul so if this happened after that i would say well it's because he stole a bit of the soul and learned it there Maybe but, he's just a really good guesser. Oh, he'd be awesome at charades. <laughs> you just stand up and Adam's like, the Titanic, George Washington crossing the Potomac. So there's some awkward phrasing here. Uh, it says originally he, the star thief, was simply Barry Bowman, an incurable invalid in the care of his then male nurse, now mental slave, Tom Voxen, something. Um yes. Something. Then male nurse, a, a male nurse is is called a nurse. So you know, yes. in the in the care of his then nurse, now slave. The phrasing makes it sound like an awkward description of a transgender person. Yes, but this is 1975. So actually, so the thing is, it's not even about transgender. It's about male nurse. Right. It's just about you know misogyny and sexism. So yeah, it's the same thing as like lady cop. Lady cop. Yeah, because it's like, it's a cop, but it's not just a cop. It's a woman. <gasps> yeah. It's a, it's the same thing. It's like, it's a male nurse. What the? Nurses can be guys? It's like, Why would they want to? Why aren't all the nurses women and all the doctors men? I mean, that's just the way it should be, right? No. So, yeah, that's a little, but that's a little, not, uh, what's it called? Acronym? An acronym. Anachronism? Yeah. yeah. Maybe. If that's the term I'm looking for right now, I'm not really sure. But yeah, that's something that would have been a valid thing to write in 1975, but now it's like, that's not really needed. Yeah, yeah. But at no point did they make anything about the fact that there was a problem with him, and that's why he had to be a nurse and not a doctor. Right. So at least there's nothing there. I mean, it's only really just pointing out that he's a man who's a nurse, but it doesn't say anything about... Well, because he wasn't good enough to be a doctor, so he had to be a nurse. The strange man who couldn't make it. Right. No, I gotcha. So at least um, they didn't do that. So Warlock continues his his you know battle against 
you know, rock creatures, stone men, and he's flying through space. Oh, wait, before that, though, the next panel from the male nurse thing. is giant brain. Yeah, but look underneath that. I, I like the font he uses for Star Trek. I mean, Star Thief. Thief. Oh, that does look like Star Trek. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't this be That's about the time great. of the animated series? I love it. Um, let's see, we're in 75. Yeah. So the animated series is past. Okay. Well, how so long we're in, is that, and, and a lot of Star Trek fans didn't even know that it was there. But we're, we're in this void of no Star Trek. The movie, I don't even think the movie's being talked about at this point. I don't think it was talked about until Star Wars made it big and they went, wait, this Star stuff is money? Well, no, they were, they were doing a second Star Trek series, Star Trek Phase 2, that became Star Trek The Motion Picture. And that was being developed, I think, by the before Star Wars came out. So the next year or two, they're going to start developing Star Trek Phase 2, and that's going to metamorphose into a motion picture. But I'm sure it's probably still in the minds of creator people who were fans of it, and I think we've figured out that he probably was a fan based on some of the stuff he did before. Most definitely. Jim Starlin, sci-fi guy in the 70s, not a fan of Star Trek, would be unheard of. Yeah. That just was an amusing thing. I actually literally just noticed that. I was like, oh, crap, that looks like the Star Trek logo. <laughs> That's fun. And the brain is the dish of the Enterprise. Yeah, it does look like that, actually, if you think about it. Because it has a little stem sticking out, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> right over the Psylocke eyes. It's really weird that it really does look like the Psylocke eyes. They really do. I mean, I wonder how much, I guess, this was an influence on uh, Alan. I'm assuming that was, that's what, from Alan Davis, probably? I think so. I couldn't I couldn't swear to that, though. I'm going to assume Alan Davis, because I know he did a lot of her stuff in the Captain Britain stuff. And I know the first few times she appeared in X-Men, they were Alan Davis drawn issues, like the New Mutants Annual and that one issue of Mutant Massacre. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to assume it's from him. I don't know when her butterfly eyes started happening. They were not in the Captain Britain series. I'm almost positive. But they were definitely before she became physically altered. Yeah. So we'll go with Alan Davis for now. Yeah. I like Alan Davis, so why not? But anyways, he fights the Rockman, so that was him beating Earth. And I guess the flying monkeys were air. Yes, because they flew in In space. space. In space. With wings. Yes. And, you know, this whole time, Starthief is ranting at him. You'd be surprised why I have little worry of that happening. Of, of of him defeating him. Very surprised. And Adam Warlock says, Bye, Orion. If you're seeking to physically overwhelm me with subtle innuendo, you're wasting your time. And yes, I too try to overwhelm people with my subtle innuendo. And your endo. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I do like the thing about uh, the rural panels above that panel, too. What is that one thought your multidimensional brain shields from my scrutiny? I don't really know what that means, but that sounds cool. Yeah. I'm wondering if it has something to do with the whole killing the timeline off in the Magus and stealing, you know, getting some of the abilities or the powers of the Magus. Because he mentions later on he has some memories and his perceptions have been altered because of the Magus. Your multidimensional brain. That is a really weird comment. It gets it's a little tip, a hint of because Warlock's powers are still pretty vague. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, they kind of give us an idea on the little caption above the, the top page: "Gifted with ultra strength, paranormal reflexes, and perceptions, the power of levitation, and the curse of a vampire soul gem." 
Yeah, Adam Warlock doesn't really have like a power set. He's just kind of this, you know, demigod force. And the only thing that's interesting or unique about him is his his soul gem. Like the rest of the stuff he just kind of do because he's Adam Warlock. That's just what he does. Yeah, like flying through space. That has nothing to do with any of the powers they gave before. Right. But obviously he doesn't, you know, need to breathe or anything. I mean, if you looked like him, you'd be able to fly through space too. I better work on my tan. Also, shark punching. Not exactly yes. listed in his power set, but definitely something he can do. And, you know, it's pretty great. I've known Superman to punch a shark or two in the face. It's it, it's happened. Yeah, it's a good thing for superhero to do. Sharks have done nothing wrong, though. They are just basically giant sea dogs. And um, we should be nicer to them. Yeah, but they're a bit more bitey than most dogs. I don't know. I've seen some pretty bitey dogs. No, some, but not all. My brother got bit by a dog. He's never gotten bitten by a shark. Okay, I'll grant you that. <laughs> However, I probably choose if I had to choose between bit by a dog and a shark. I'll probably depending on the sh- depending on the shark. I probably pick the pick a dog. Yeah, yeah. Since uh, shark mouths are giant razor fences. Yes, I, I saw Jaws. I know how that works. <sighs> I saw I both duck- of the Jaws. I actually saw all four of them. I was almost born during the first one. That's weird, dude. How'd that happen? My mom saw it and apparently freaked her out. She started thinking she was going to labor. Oh, okay. Well, you know. Could have been worse. Could have been born during, like, I don't know, Exorcist or something. I was going to say, in the ocean when a shark was coming. That would also be bad. Yes. And speaking of a shark coming, let's get back to it. <laughs> I got myself distracted. But yeah, so now the water, I like this. This is water. You have to fight a shark in space. <laughs> Star Thief is crazy. Yeah. Star Thief is like, okay, I got this thing watery. I know a shark in space. It's like, what's the point? Of, like, that has nothing to do with water. I mean, it's a water animal, but. It's in space. It's moving around the same as the monkeys with it did. Yeah. There's no difference. But anyway, it's still fun to watch him punch a shark. But it doesn't matter because the shark just shrugs it off. Um, yeah, until he flies into the tail of a comet, because that's how comets work, kids. No, he goes in front of the comet. Oh, yeah, right into the face of the comet. Yeah, so um, first of all, he calls it a midget comet. I have never heard that term in my life. What is a midget comet? Well, my assumption, just based on what I'm seeing here and not actually doing research of actual science, because science is hard, is he says, because he's saying the comet must be hundreds of miles across. So I'm assuming maybe a regular sized comet is larger. I don't know. The phrase midget comet does not turn up in any Google results. Are you saying that a comic creator in the 70s before Google or anything like that just kind of made up their own science? Maybe it did. Next thing you're, you're going to tell me is that magnets don't do everything that Stanley told us they did. No, magnets do do everything that he told us they did. Stanley was genius. Okay, thank you. He understood these about magnetism that even magnets don't understand. <laughs> um, also, this midget comet, which is, I guess, smaller than the average comet, 
Um, comets, comets are balls of ice. They are not fire. There's nothing hot about a comet. So the heat would not be intolerable, as he says. No. And they only have tails when they're near a sun. Oh, really? Yeah. I was not aware of that. Yeah, the, uh, the tail is actually the solar winds blowing back particles of the comet in a streak. And the- weirdly, the yeah. tail is not like, you know, whenever a boat's going through the water, the wake is the trail behind the boat. Yeah. A tail of a comet is not behind it. The tail of the comet is always perpendicular to the sun. So the solar winds are actually blowing that stuff off the comet. And so if you had a picture of a comet going around the sun, the tail would actually rotate around, always pointing away from the sun as the, as the comet made its orbit. Oh. Yeah, it's a little weird, isn't it? That's kind of cool. So as it's leaving the sun, it's actually flying into its own tail. Oh, wow. Weird. Mm-hmm. But, solar yeah, winds are weird. I don't really understand solar winds, but they exist. Yeah. But, you, no, you're right about the icing. It's right. Because, I mean, it's space. It's There's no atmosphere, and it's frigid cold. It's ice cold. You know, there's no heat. So it makes sense they're balls of ice, because the only reason, like, suns are there, it's because suns aren't on fire. Suns are nuclear furnaces. Right. There are energy reactions happening. And a comet is just a rock flying through space. Basically. So we have flying monkeys that can't fly because there's no air. We have a shark that can't swim because there's no water. We have a fire that can't be fire because it's ice. And we have stone men who, I don't know, they're stone men. So I guess that's okay. Well, the first two parts we can at least, you know, it's Star Thief creating them. So they're, he's, he's kind of like almost like a beyonder level power. Right. So it's like whatever he wants, you know. He wants sharks to fly in space. They fly in space. He wants these monkeys to have wings just for aesthetic reasons. It doesn't matter. I don't think that's affecting their flying. I can give those up. The comet point. Definite point there. <laughs> but again, I always do give a little slack to the people back then because it's not like, you know, I mean, to do research on that, they'd have to go to the library and look at books and comets and things like that. I mean, if I was th- if I had thought about it, I could have research. You know, I could have looked up the comet in five in two five minutes. Oh, but I'm dumb. I forgot that was not actually Star Thief's fire threat. There's the whole fire giant that happens in a few minutes. Yeah, yeah. That's why I said the okay. comet's not him. The fire yeah. giant. That's him making it up. But again, he can he does what he wants. Comet's just bad writing. Yeah, or ill informed. Ill informed writing. It's not bad writing. It's ill informed writing. Yeah. Um, but, so but Warlock, it does give us an idea real quick of how fast he must be if he's flying. It's hundreds of miles across, and he's flying right across in front of it. Mm-hmm. Shark is dead. And then he steals a bit of Thar- Starthief's yeah, Star soul. Which is weird, right? Yeah, like just a portion of it. And apparently Starthief is now pissed off at him. Yes. Now, Starthief is so far away, and Warlock is still able to steal a partial soul? Well, I'm guessing this is still... This is part of him. Because isn't his plan... He mentions it later on the issue. Once the Earth is gone, he's going to abandon his body and go. So, obviously, he either doesn't need or doesn't think he needs his body. So, this must be at least... The eyes we're seeing must actually be him. 
some manifestation of him actually there. Exactly. Okay. It's not just an image. That's his form, astral form or whatever you want to call it, but it's still part of him. So then the blazing giant shows up out of a nearby planetoid of some sort. And And the giant looks pretty cool. The giant does look very cool. What is Warlock swearing by? By Zor. I forgot it, to check that out. That's right. Superman's uncle? Zor? Oh, yeah. No, no. Uh, wait, Kara, yeah, Kara Zor-El. You're right. I have no idea what the hell Zor is. Let's look up Zor. Uh, fiction. No. No. I have no idea. I mean, okay. I'm looking up. There's a Bollywood film. There's a character from Robotech. Villain in the movie The Cave Dwellers. It's a de- uh, Demons of Zor, supervillains in Marvel from the Vision and Scarlet Witch miniseries, but that was like 10 years later. Yeah. There's an evil magician in DC. Clara's dad. Clark's sure. uncle. That works for me. Because, yeah, I have no idea where that came from. Star uh, Warlock's been spending his time between stars reading Superman comics. Well, you gotta do something to pass the time. I mean, that's a lot of flying, and it can get boring. What do these I, demigods do between epic events? You can only soliloquize and do some, you know, astral navel gazing for so long. I think what the Watcher is watching, he probably spends most of his time watching the library and reading, just like using his Watcher vision to read books. He's reading books. He's watching TV. Listen to BBC radio programs. He wants to know how Game of Thrones wraps up. Exactly. Well, at this point in time, he probably was still watching Dark Shadows. or uh, Earth, If that was still yeah. on then. Or maybe General Hospital. Yeah, I don't think Dark Shadows is on anymore in 1975. I think it was early 70s that it ended. So the fight with the giant fire creature doesn't last long. No, because he just smashes a rock in its head. Right. This smoldering boulder behind me must use it to shatter that walking inferno's brain. A plan that would be stolen later on to lesser effect by Killer Croc in the Batman animated series. (laughs) And Green Goblin in that first appearance from Spider-Man. Yes. Lured Spider-Man out of the desert to hit him in the head with a rock. It was a big rock. Yes. Didn't. Not as big as this, though. Didn't do nearly as much damage to Spider-Man that we're doing to um, Fire Creature. Well, I would hope not, because it's just an empty husk with no head at all. Right. I'm pretty sure Spider-Man didn't stop with issue, what was that, 16? 14. 14. That was close. The best part is right after that, where you see the empty husk there and Star Thief is monologuing. You know, I underestimated you. You've proven a true warlock and... Where the hell did you go? Right? <laughs> so he's actually possessing these things. He's not just like creating them. It's like it barely exited that burning Hulk in time to escape sharing its demise. So if Warlock could kill one of these um, constructs while the Star Thief is in it, then theoretically he would actually kill the Star Thief in the process. Yeah, potentially. I mean, that would explain why one of the monkeys actually does talk. Because it's actually the Star Thief. That was Star Thief at that point in him. But I'm guessing it wasn't in them in them before when he tried to use the Soul Gem on him. He probably wanted to get the physical experience of actually killing his warlock. As opposed to mentally just directing, go kill it. Go kill him. He actually wanted to do it himself. 
I mean, kind of makes sense. It's a sick, sick thing, you know, wants to kill somebody, but I mean, he's not able to do anything. So that's really his only way to get any physical interaction. And I looked up black holes because the nice thing Warlock does is like, I got to go through a black hole to get to the other side of the galaxy where my star is uh, to get to Earth. And I have never understood why we link the idea of black holes to wormholes. Like, I think there's some sort of scientific concept that links the two. But to me, like a black hole is just a super, super dense star. So it's called a hole because no light escapes it. We can't actually see it. Yes. I actually asked that question to uh, W. Blaine Dowler, man who knows science, the Reed mm-hmm. Richards of podcasting. Mm-hmm. He says, flying through a black hole never works. In theory, two black holes could line up and form a wormhole. But it took about 18 months for scientists to figure out that if any mass or energy entered the wormhole, it would cause that would cause it to collapse and it becomes two black holes and kills the traveler. Right. So would that work? So even if there is a wormhole linking two black holes, you could not actually traverse it. Exactly. The the only time that works is here and in the movie The Black Hole. Right. I do like the effect of the black hole with the the like the white like the the light color and the and the dark color, like yeah, showing, I showing the light being sucked in. He's sort of reminiscing about having the Magus's memories and powers as he's going through the black hole, and he's well, going to use that to steer and get dropped off right by Earth. Well, not just that, his intellect linked with Autolycus's navigational skill and oh, wow. the Magus's dark knowledge. Yeah. That's a cool thing, and that's the first time we've seen that. It's one thing to know he's sucked in their souls, but this is the first time he's actually accessing abilities and knowledge that they had. Sort of like whenever Rogue accesses Carol Danvers' ideas or whatever. Exactly. Although usually, that was usually when Carol Danvers was in charge. Right. Unless I'm forgetting, unless I'm forgetting any specific instances, but... But yeah, similar to that, but it'd be like if she was able to access Carol Danvers' knowledge anytime she wanted to. Oh, you know, it's more like it's more like um, whatever Don Blake or Thor taps into the other one's mind. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Like when Thor happens to know some medical stuff. And it's like, Thor, you do not know medicine. You know leeches. Be quiet. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that doesn't work, but it's still a cool image. And then also I do like the whole light light parade going on inside the black hole. Yeah. Like all that light's gotten sucked into the black hole. So it's just like dancing around in there. Yeah. It's a very 1970s science fiction concept of black holes that really doesn't line up with anything we know about them today, but this was 40 years ago, so you know whatever. Yeah, and yeah, he says it, and also going going with the other stuff, he says, Ever since my vampire soul gem destroyed the Magus, I've shared many of his, many of his memories and all his perceptive powers. That's kind of a cool little after effect of that whole big uh, death of Adam Warlock from Warlock number 11. Mm-hmm. And now those ultra senses are going to help him find the exit. Like Dr. Doc Browning, Back to the Future 2. Here's our exit. Yep. I'm wondering if that was going to somehow lead into how he was going to live. If the series never got canceled and, War- and Starlin didn't leave. Because assu- we can assume, based on stuff he's done, that War- he probably would have brought the series to the point where Warlock was supposed to die. Yeah, the plot points that we get in the annuals were what he was working toward eventually. Yeah. But I'm assuming if he was going to continue on the series, you know, if things had worked out, he didn't leave Marvel and the series wasn't canceled. 
he would have gotten to that and probably figured out a way to not have him die. Right. And continue Maybe. on the series. Because, I mean, he left, he wasn't at Marvel. He was at DC for years. You know, he was doing DC Comics Presents stuff and creating Mongol and eventually writing Batman and killing Jason Todd. That's kind of my assumption of why Warlock and Thanos died. He just came back for those the two stories. If I ever get a chance to interview Starlin, that's the one thing I want to ask him is if he remembers it all, what were his, did he have any idea of what he was going to do with the series going forward? Right. Well, it is both here and there because it's here on Earth and there far away on Earth because, you know, Warlock's not anywhere close to Earth. Nope. Um, Star Thief is so taken up by this battle that he is no longer controlling the nurse. And so the nurse gets up. He's like, I'm free to act and act I shall. And he looks pissed. Yes. Well, he's been enslaved mentally for who knows how long. Yeah, for years. Had a shower in weeks or months. Eh, he might have. I mean, he might not have, but I kind of have to assume that Barry's trying to experience everything that he could in that body. So he probably made him eat a whole bunch of stuff. He got dirty. He got clean. He went swimming. He did things. But then we get to the big crux of the issue, the, sort of the, the big zinger end of this storyline that Star Thief has been teasing all issue long that we were teasing earlier in the episode, the first half of the episode. Oh, the twist? Yeah. This is like the Twilight Zone, Jim Starlin's doing a classic sci-fi kind of story. Yes, where Warlock pops out of a black hole somewhat near the Milky Way, and I overshot Earth. Actually, not just Earth. I overshot my solar system. I mean, like I've gone a mile or two without, you know, by accident the wrong way. I've never overshot a whole solar system. He's going like several light hours in a few seconds or whatever. And that is way past the posted speed limit there. Right, right. Way past that. So. Yep, he is a giant. He is a giant. And. The explanation for this is, again, one of those 70s sci-fi concepts that probably sounded plausible at the time, but nowadays is like, no, no, that is, that's, that's not how that works. And that's the whole, like, expanding universe, the idea that, like, you know, ever since the Big Bang, everything's been expanding farther and farther outward. Yeah, because he's a giant standing in front of all the planets, and it's he's an intangible phantom, affecting neither the gravity nor the light of the planet he was born on. So I'm going to assume that maybe he's also invisible, because even if he's in, in affecting it, you'd think people would notice and freak out. Yeah, I'd assume that his particles are so spread apart that his visibility is really just a conceit for the reader. Exactly. But according to Star Thief, yeah, it's the expanding universe theory. I <laughs> like out of Warlock. Expanding universe? Yeah. It isn't speculated the atoms of all space are constantly expanding or drifting further apart. So all space is constantly expanding, but it's not uniform. And since Warlock has been so far away from Earth for so long, he has grown at a quicker pace. He has been in some part of the universe where the expansion is happening more quickly than in others. And really, this is this is very silly yes. because expanding universes is, is, is really just the idea that there was an explosion. And like with any explosion, all of the particles radiated outwards. So all of the bodies in the universe are slowly expanding, but like 
the space within the particles is still held constant by all the forces of, you know, physics. So atoms are not drifting farther apart, but bodies are drifting farther and farther apart. Yeah. Now, I asked that to Blaine as well. I thought about this. I prepared. So according to Blaine, the expanding universe theory is confirmed in a sense. We know the universe is expanding, but that doesn't necessarily mean atomic bonds will get longer and people will get bigger. It may not be a completely uniform expansion. We can't tell yet. But even if it isn't, moving from one part to the other would subject you to the local laws of physics. So it might kill you, but it wouldn't turn you into the but it wouldn't kill. Yeah, but it wouldn't turn you into into. I can't speak today, <laughs> but it wouldn't turn you into into an intangible giant. At least not at first. <laughs> not unless you live on Earth 616. Right. If you're on Universe 616, that's maybe possible. So this is, you know, the zinger ending. Warlock can no, you know, you can't go home again. He can't go back to Earth. And of course, Warlock has not been on Earth since what? Fantastic 466? No, the Thor issues. Was he on Earth in the Thor issues? I thought that was a space fight. I think it was on Earth. It's okay. So long, I don't remember. I mean, that was it. Episode six. Yeah. So at least as far back as the Thor issues, definitely before the entire Adam Warlock thing, when he was still just him, he hasn't been on Earth. So why he's so sad at not being able to go home again is a little bit silly. But at the same time, Counter Earth theoretically could still be there. He could try to go to Counter Earth. Um, yeah, he can't go there either, since obviously Counter-Earth's opposite side of the sun, so it would be the same effect. Right. So either way, he can't go home. They just never mentioned Counter-Earth here, which I think continuity-wise is a little bit of a misstep. And what make more, Counter-Earth would make more sense here, because with the way the panic was being shown on Earth, the issue before, it would make more sense if there was a world that had no superheroes but Adam Warlock. Mm-hmm. And therefore, without him there... It's only people, as opposed to the other one where it's like, yeah, but what about the Fantastic Four? Couldn't you call Reed Richards to ask him to try and work this out? The benefit of this issue is that there are no corporeal forces that he faces in this issue where you might say, oh, Adam Warlock is a giant intangible phantom, but what about all those other people? But it wasn't that long ago that he was dealing with other people who have not grown. So evidently this has really, like, just happened. Yeah. Which is kind of strange. It's very strange. Luckily, it's going to get dealt with pretty quickly. Yeah. Because if Warlock stayed a giant forever, we'd never have the Infinity Gauntlet. No. No, and that would not be as much fun. But Warlock apparently is like, it doesn't matter, because I just realized that um, you're going to lose in about five seconds. Because his nurse is, uh, well, going very crazy. Hmm. I mean, that is a creepy panel. The, I must punish you for being bad. Yes, bad. So bad. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, poor... What was his name again? Tom? I think so. Yeah, Tom has completely lost... After being subject mental control for so long, has completely lost it. Yeah, Tom. And he takes out a gun, which I'm not sure why he had that on him. As you do. But, okay. And... Shoots Barry, killing him. And then we get that great scene with everyone just dragging him away. He's like, I killed him. I'm a hero. I just saved us all. 
I saved the world. Like, sure, pal. Sure you did. It reminds me a lot of the end of, uh, or the beginning, I guess you could say, of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. If you remember that movie. It's been a long time since I saw it. It, the main character in the beginning is like looking like a madman. He's in the middle of the road, just jumping at cars, going, They're here! They're here! They're coming for us! You're next! They're here already! You're next! And everyone's like, Get out of the road, you loony. <laughs> and that's kind of the same thing going on here. Because he's right. He did save them all, he saved the universe. But no one will ever know, except no. Warlock. And him. But as Wolak says, I guess it doesn't really matter. The stars have returned in a dangerous past. So this is kind of a quirky little story. I like some of the ideas that are in it. I like the storytelling itself, especially in the first part of it. Um, But at the end of the day, this is a phase of the Warlock series that kind of has me left going, la la la, where's the next, you know, big cosmic epic storyline going to happen? Yeah, I think if this had been going on, kept going on as a series, there would have been a little bit of like a few breaks like a few issues of breaking, like you know, one and two part stories, and then he would have probably gotten to his next big story. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the way things work out, we never get to the next big story. Because the next issue is the last issue. Yeah, and that does not feel like a last issue at all. I mean, that feels like there's you know another issue to come after that. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it just stops. I mean, next is even just called a series of events, and that's really all it is. And that's like, you know, the weirdest title for a next issue or the weirdest caption for next issue box is like a series of events. Okay. Um, Every issue is a series of events. What you have just told us is a series of events. So what does it even mean? I think it means Sim Starlin didn't know what was going to be in the issue yet. So they just had to put something. It's nowhere near as good as the mega stuff, obviously, but there's not much that is. Mm -hmm. Like I said, some of the concepts, I mean, we're okay for the 70s. Obviously, they've been debunked, you know, proven incorrect since then, but they work well enough. Art stuff, at least, is pretty cool. Like I said, the design of the fire creature, the design of the monkeys, you know, the way the black hole looked. And what was that other thing I was going to say here? Oh, and how the way he does Tom in those last few panels when he goes to kill Barry. Yes. I mean, that is great. It's not as good as the other one, but I would definitely still, if I was re-picking this up at the time, I would definitely still want to keep picking it up. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, when I say not the best story, that's not even say it's bad. It's just, I guess, not as high stakes as other stuff we've done. But it's it's a, it's a good little sci-fi story. And we want to see what happens next with Adam Warlock. And next issue's cover has him unleashed at last, which has promise of amazing things to come that will definitely happen. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> eventually eventually now before we close out the issue do you have the letters pages and your copy of what you're reading i don't i'm looking at the uh, comicsology warlock collection okay so the letters here is about the last one is about the uh, last episode we did warlock number 12 the mm-hmm. uh, pip story and apparently people loved it okay yeah people really did enjoy the pip thing now there was some thing, you know, not debate because it was a letters page, but there was some different opinions about whether they wanted Pip to come back right away or they're like, we love Pip, but like enough goes a long way, you know, have him be gone for a little while and then bring him back. They don't want to overdo him. One or two people, of course, asked if he was Jack Kirby. They did say um, it, it, their answer to that is it's not Jack. Jack does not have pointy ears, nor his feet the least bit furry. 
And the last time he danced with Wild Abandon, well, let's just say it was a while back, okay? So they were actually thinking that might actually be like a cipher for Jack Kirby? Yeah, because of the cigar, I think. I guess. That never occurred to me, though. Oh, think about the one other character that people kind of view as a cipher for Jack Kirby from Marvel. The Thing. Right. And the big old cigar. You can even say Nick Fury a little bit. Especially the way we, we've learned about Jack's early years. Mm-hmm. You could say that was kind of like a bit like Fury is Jack, you know, the more younger, angry Jack. Nick Fury is the Jack Kirby that from the story we heard about from when he was doing Captain America back in the 40s where, like, the pro-Nazi group showed up to, pissed off about it and Jack Kirby, like, rolled his sleeves up and went downstairs to fight them. Yeah. You know, that's very much a Ben Grimm, Nick Fury type thing to do. But I would say the cigar is the only thing that would link Pip to that because... Pip would go, oh, that's nice. I'm going to be in the other building. <laughs> but there's one letter I want to read real quick. Okay. Dear Marvel, after the seven-issue masterwork concerning Adam Warlock's battle with the Magus, something was definitely needed to break the tension that had been heretofore been running so long. A trollish tale filled that need. Even though Pip's antics provided the single most enjoyable tale of the month, I hope it'll be a while before everyone's favorite troll teams with Warlock again. A character like Pip is classic, and can easily become too cutesy if he's around every issue. However, may I cast my vote in favor of a Warlock-Silver Surfer team-up? Yes, I know all about the asterisks being used as cursing barrier that keeps the Surfer on Earth. But he could always get inside a big cardboard box and send himself COD to Homeworld. See how easy it is when you don't stop to think about it? Signed, Paul Dini. Paul Dini. That's fun. I don't have the original issues for everything that I'm reading that's like from that time period. So I don't know how common it is. I mean, I know, for instance, you had said on Makers Marvel, like there were some letters from George R.R. Martin in early FF. Uh But it seems like every letter column they have for Warlock, there's a name in there that's a name we know. Like last issue, issue 13 had had a letter from Ralph Macchio. You know, future Marvel editor, not Karate Kid. We got Paul Dini in here now. I'm curious to see who's, if there's a letter page for 15, who's going to be in that one. Okay. That's neat. Uh, Keenan and I have been watching the uh, Batman animated series for his first time. We uh, we finished the first season, which is like 60-odd episodes. Yeah, I'm about and... halfway through that one. I just got through the No Hope in Crime Alley episode. Gotcha. And uh, after, after I get through reading my summer of 93 comics, when we get into the fall of 93, we'll watch some more episodes. But the season breakups for that are a little bit unusual because of, I guess, the way it was produced and then it was the broadcast was spread out. Yeah. So the, technically, we have not finished the first season because a lot of the first some of the first season episodes were saved until the next broadcast season. Is he enjoying it? Yeah. Yeah, he oh, really good. likes it. Oh, good. Which makes me happy. But yeah, so that's Warlock 14. It's definitely a different series. It's definitely doing its own thing. Starlin is definitely, whatever reasons he has to leave, you know, that come up, at least up until this point, he's definitely being left to do whatever he wants to do. Mm-hmm. Which is pretty cool. Hi, I'm Blaine Dowler, host of Bedtime in the Public Domain. In this podcast series, I'll read bedtime stories from books in the public domain. Each weekday, I'll release one chapter or short story from a selected larger collection. Once the entire book is done, I'll also release an audiobook version, including all chapters or short stories, 
before taking a few days off to prepare the next series. All stories will be from one of the children's categories from the Project Gutenberg website, because they do an excellent job of editing the content to ensure it's in public domain, and I have neither the time nor expertise required to do that myself. Suggestions for the stories that come next are welcome and encouraged. You can find the show at Bureau42.com, on iTunes, and on Stitcher. Captain America and the Red Skull. Note, the Cosmic Cube can do anything. I want my part in the Bicentennial Celebration to be the most patriotic, most fantastic ever. So I must practice. Holy lightning, where are these blasted rays taking me? Ah, yes, my little fellow, my cosmic cube. With your powers and my evil brain, we can take over the United States before the Bicentennial Celebration. And then the world! Of course, it will be a lot easier with Captain America out of the way. Welcome, Captain America! My cosmic cube has delivered you from Washington to my doorstep. Now we'll see what kind of bicentennial will be with you as my prisoner. I know how to get that cosmic cube on my side. Okay, cosmic cube, since you're so super powerful, maybe you'll be super sensitive to delicious hostess Twinkies. Mmm, delicious golden sponge cake. Cosmic cube, I command you to pulverize Captain America! The cube refuses to do anything against Cap because it is enjoying the Twinkies too much. Your Cosmic Cube refuses to obey you because it's enjoying the Hostess Twinkies. Mmm, smooth cream filling, too. And now back to the important work of the glorious Bicentennial. I'd better stop off for another package of Hostess Twinkies on my way back to the Washington Monument. By Judge Washington, my cube has gone square. You You get get a a big big delight delight in every every bite of Hostess Hostess Twinkies. Twinkies. Okay, so now it is time for the Friends and Enemies segment, and in case you've never listened to the show before, in the Friends and Enemies segment, we look at the other comics that are out the same cover date as the one we talked about today, August 1976, and we see where the other series we've covered on the show before are at. And today, to help me out, we have W. Blaine Dowler, who I've I've mentioned before on the show as the Reed Richards of podcasting. How are you doing, Blaine? I'm doing well. How about you, Al? I'm good. Well, thanks for having me on. Anytime. And I was doing the Reed Richard thing more in the science part than less than the, you know, let's experiment on my child part. Yeah, yeah, I don't have a child yet, so that's not an option at this point. Yeah. So just to clarify, just to clarify. Although I do have students. That's allowed, I believe. Uh, it depends on think, the experimentation. I don't think Dr. Miles Warren ever had his, you know, tenure revoked. At least not for that. I'm going to go allowed. Okay, well, that opens up all sorts of possibilities. Oh, there you go. I'm happy to help, but I am not happy to take blame. All right, so we're going to start today with the Avengers, number 150, Avengers Assemble, by Steve Englehart, Stan Lee, George Perez, Jack Kirby, Dick Ayers, John Tartaloni, and Duffy Volholland. Duffy Voland. Let's go with that. The Avengers' epic adventure of the Serpent Crown is over, and now Earth's mightiest heroes return to Avengers Mansion to finalize their new roster. After Thor announces his leave of absence from the group, the Avengers take a walk down memory lane. 
Uh, when they would just stick reprints in there. Yeah, I'm I'm used to multiples of 50 being special issues. I wasn't expecting the comic equivalent of a clip show. Yeah, wasn't it mostly a reprint of 16? It was. There's about six or seven pages at the beginning that are new art, at least. So it starts with the Avengers showing up. Thor announces his departure. And then there's new art summarizing you know, how the the team roster changed in the first three or four issues from the original formation to the addition of Captain America. And then, yeah, it goes into a pretty much straight-up reprint. So three-quarters of the issue is a reprint of issue 16 that put together Cap's Coogie Quartet, as they call it, with Captain America, Quicksilver, Scarlet Witch, Witch. and Hawkeye. Which, (sighs) it might have been better received then, than it is now because when this came out in 1976 reprints and back issues were not as easily obtained so if i were buying this off the racks in 76 this might have been my only opportunity to read that story and i might have been quite happy instead my first time reading it was reading the avengers dvd rom from gitcorp in sequence i'm like yeah i read that already give me new stuff for the issue 150 yeah, you're going through the whole run, and you're like, wait, what is this? I've read this already. Yeah, it's not terrible. It's just, I, I would have had found it even better received if this was issue 149. There's mm. just expectations from that multiple of 50. And you're right. I wasn't thinking about that, because I was thinking, well, maybe, you know, Shooter does have some points when he, you know, fires Engelhart for things like this, because people are expecting new issues, and they're getting old. But I forgot, yeah, it is in a time period. I mean, it's why we don't see clip shows anymore on, t- on sitcoms and stuff, because... They don't need to. It's all on Netflix or DVD or whatever. People don't need to have a clip show to see scenes of episodes they might not have watched if they just started last year. Plus, the clip shows on TV were often a case of mismanaging the budget, and they've gotten better at that now. They they were often just running out of money, but were contractually obligated to give an entire episode. A lot of those sitcoms that had the clip shows didn't really have continuity, so what happened in the past didn't matter. And who cares if you haven't watched the first three seasons? Yeah, but it also still did happen on things like uh, shows I assumed have budgets, like Friends. So, I mean, you have to assume yeah. by season five and six, Friends had a budget. I don't think they were worried about yeah. go, you know not having money to produce episodes. Yeah, that might have been one of the few that was legitimately giving the growing audience a chance to catch up. But things like, I think it was the second season of MacGyver, where the last two episodes were two completely different clip shows... For two completely different reasons. One, MacGyver had amnesia. One, he encountered a a recurring character. The season two finale of Next Generation is one of the worst reviewed episodes of any Star Trek ever. Because it's basically a clip show that Shades of Grey. And the final episode of the 1967 Spider-Man cartoon. That was one where they weren't contracted to produce a given set of episodes. Their contract said every episode you give us, you'll get paid X number of dollars. So when they only had a few dollars left, they threw together a clip show to get another full payment. And that could be why they didn't get renewed again. Hmm. Well, in those episodes, I definitely would say it is most likely the money, especially that MacGyver one. It does sound like they're like, we're finished, we're done. No, you need two more. Oh, crap. Yeah, the first two seasons of MacGyver frequently overran the budget, and that's why they stopped doing what they they called the opening gambit, the pre-credits, totally unrelated action sequence. From then on, the pre-credit sequences actually connected to the rest of the story. So they didn't need totally new sets, totally new actors, totally new production design 
for a okay. five minute thing. Yeah, because you're doing a whole thing in those few minutes and then you're not using it anytime else. Yeah, exactly. It, it's a lot easier to do that on a show like Batman Brave and the Bold where you're just animating everything anyway. Yeah, although they still have to do the environmental design and things like that. But again, generally speaking, TV production has gotten better at budget management. So with Brave and the Bold, that was built in from the start. And yeah. more accurately estimated, because with animation, I'm not saying cost overruns can't happen, but you're not going to have a cost overrun because you didn't realize how difficult it would be for this on-location shooting and had to go buy different equipment. True. It's the same equipment. There's not much to say on that one. I mean, unless we're talking, unless, you know, we go to make ours marble and talk about Avengers 16, really. <laughs> yeah, but they'll get there and they'll do it well because that's what they do. They might not get to 150, but they'll get to 16. So, you know, they got half the issue covered. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Why don't you take the next one? I will be very happy to take an issue of Daredevil. So Daredevil issue 136, A Hanging for a Hero by Marv Wolfman, Bob Brown and Jim Mooney. So Jester continues to manipulate the media by faking a newscast by the president where he tells the public to kill all superheroes. Jester captures Daredevil and holds a mock trial. And it includes cameos of a sort by John F. Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy and Gerald Ford. I say cameos of a sort because the Jester's entire plan in the post Watergate era where people have lost faith in the government and authority figures Mm. He's uh, taken software that someone created to insert dead actors and make new movies with dead actors purely as a special effect. Only the fiction that the Jester's creating involves, you know, the Kennedy brothers, one of whom was already deceased at this point. But it's all fictional creations of these people. And he's broadcasting them over the TV stations, even though the police are saying none of this is real. And the news stations are saying, no, our signal was interrupted. The people have so little faith in the government and the figures of authority that they will swallow any comforting fake news that feeds their paranoia. Which felt so much more ridiculous when I first read this about 10 years ago than it does Mm -hmm. now, sadly. I was thinking about that and also with the getting digital versions of dead actors to make new films. I mean, wow, when was this written again? (laughs) Yeah, it was written in 1976, but with Marvel's 12-year sliding timeline, where, (laughs) you know, the Fantastic Four's trip that sort of sparked the current Marvel era happened 12 years ago, this is way too plausible. Yeah, this is... Although there is a bit of a a spoiler in in the title here, because that a hanging for a hero, that's the last page. (laughs) And that's that's the cover image. It's the cover image, and it's the splash page the issue ends on to make you want to come back to read the next one. Because this is a a multi-part story. The gesture... I mean, Daredevil 136, so this is five months after Daredevil finally gets a really good, long-lasting villain with Bullseye. Yeah, that's right. Bullseye wasn't too long ago. Yeah, the Jester is like... It felt like early on, they were trying to give him his own version of the Joker. And that's kind of what this is. He's sowing chaos, but it's chaos that he's controlling, steering, and navigating. So the the Jester is a villain that has potential that's never really been fully realized. 
I can see that with the stuff Marvel's publishing at the time, Daredevil probably been the closest to a, a Batman-like character for them. Well, yeah, and they might be kicking themselves because they had Denny O'Neill write one issue of Daredevil or half an issue of Daredevil when he realized, oh, yeah, if I'm silent at night, I've got the advantage in the dark. And he was Denny O'Neill was turning him to the Dark Knight character, but then he wasn't as funny. So Stanley fired him and finished the issue himself. <laughs> and DC read that issue and said, we like that. The Batman TV series is off the air, so we don't have to be holding to that. Do you want to come and do a take like that on Batman? Well, so it worked out for other people, just not Daredevil. Yeah, and then a few years later, Frank Miller's going to make his mark on Daredevil, and DC's going to go, you know, we really, really like that. Do you want to come do that with Dare- with Batman? So. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, Daredevil was doing the camp in the 60s at the same time as the t- Batman show anyway. I mean, that's about around the era of Mike Murdock and all that craziness. Yeah, 60s Daredevil was... He, Matt Murdock's personality was not so far removed from Spider-Man as it is now, back in the 60s. Yeah, the one, what I've read of it, I've noticed that. In any event, though, I mean, Daredevil's my all-time favorite hero, so I have this actual issue that I purchased in back issues. I've got the complete run. Oh, wow. In a very hit-and-miss era, this is one of the stronger stories. Oh, well, that's good, well, that's good to know. But yeah, I mean, the cover is pretty striking, at least. So I guess the hanging works was both a cover, you know, to drag you in the cover and then keep you coming with the next issue. Because if that's what you're buying it for, you're like, well, I got to go buy the next one now. There's no hanging yet, really. Yep. That makes me wonder, I really, maybe Marv Wolfman should have written a Nostradamus-like book back then. He was on to something, that's for sure. Exactly. All right. right. I, th- Coming- I think you're on the, the next comic we have here, which is the one that's yep. probably the most closely tied to the Warlock and Thanos history of this batch. Yes. Oh, yes. Fantastic Four, number 173, Counter-Earth Must Die at the Hands of Galactus. By Roy Thomas, John Buscema, and Joe Sinnott, Galactus has arrived at Counter-Earth, and that means the planet's days are numbered. Is there anything their FF can do to save the High Revolutionary's creation? And for more than what we're going to say here, go listen to Fantastic Cast episode 233. This at least has something to do with Adam, although he does not appear in this at all. But yes, he, he is from Counter-Earth and well, not from Counter-Earth, but he did spend a lot of time there. Yeah, without the Warlock series, Counter-Earth wouldn't exist. So even if he he's only in like a couple of panels as a flashback, his story is the reason this story is possible. Yeah, and I mean, he did appear in a few in a panel or two in the issue before. So it is, yeah, this is a decent one. I will echo Al's sentiment about checking out the Fantastic Cast for more complete coverage, and I'll even one up that and say check out the Fantastic Cast just because it's really, really good. Yes, there are. I, I would say that it's one of the top three comic podcasts out there, along with Make Ours Marvel and JML's Explain the X Men, at least. From my view. I can't argue too much with that sentiment. The title may be preemptive. It's like Counter-Earth must die. Galactus is like, in the story, it's more like, I got to eat something. If you don't want me to eat Counter-Earth, well, then you find me another planet to eat. I, I do like how the pro- whole premise of the story is basically a loophole. Galactus is like, look, I promise not to eat Earth. This is Counter-Earth. Ah, it's okay. I can eat it. <laughs> yep. But yeah, poor Counter-Earth gets screwed over after the Warlock series ends. I mean, it just bounces around from being plot point to plot point with none of the characters really getting much appearances. Yeah, especially when they 
they do eventually mention that it's got a mass that's only about a tenth of that of the real Earth. Oh that's yeah, and the Marvel Two and One issues. Yeah, that's a retcon that comes later, which mm-hmm. really begs the question of how they function with that much gravity, and also really skews the whole Lagrange point thing because having two objects in orbit on complete opposite sides of the same orbit is not stable. Lagrange found six specific points in various orbits that do special things. That's considered the L2 or the second of the six. It is an unstable equilibrium. So the first time a comet goes by, it's going to give it enough of a nudge that at least one of the planets is going to spin off into space. I wonder if they did that one tenth of the mass because that's, that's the proportion you need for Earth's orbit to be stable. Right. Oh, okay. So if you've got two objects in those points and one of them is more than 10 times massive than the other, then the smaller one will get spun off into space because it's unstable. But the larger one is not really going to go anywhere. If they're equal mass, then they both get thrown out into space. They might have done that one tenth just to to specifically say, OK, this artificial planet. That's not going to destabilize the Earth. And because it's artificial and high evolutionary put it there, we could do some hand wavy thing that says the high evolutionary is holding it there as well. Yeah. Uh, it always makes you wonder in these older stories because, I mean, unlike now where if anyone wanted to learn that, get some ideas of that, they could at least try and go online, look it up, ask somebody on there. Back then it was go to a college professor, literally go to them, go to a library and start looking up stuff. So I have to wonder... Like you said with that, did somebody actually look up those information when they were writing that issue and come up with the one-tenth, or is that just a happy accident? Because Yes, yeah. I, I wish I would, I'd known, or who knows, maybe it was some unpublished letter in the writer in the letters column saying, um, you got a problem here, guys, from a college student who would later become the college professor saying, this math doesn't work, because... I mean, we're talking about the Lagrange points. If memory serves, Lagrange died in the 18th century. So it's not like his work was brand wasn't new. known to some people. Yeah, at least people studying that wouldn't have known about it. It wasn't a brand new thing that wouldn't show up for years. Yeah, the people in the field knew what he was talking about. Yeah, so if any of them were studying it or in it, into it already and reading this, they could have written in saying, hey. Although, of course, I always say also in these Marvel and DC universes, you do have to accept the fact that sometimes... obviously the laws of physics there have to be somewhat slightly different to accept these things that happen because otherwise how are they going to happen yeah we already know that the barriers between universes in the marvel universe are and the dc universe are significantly lower energy barriers than those in our universe because we've crunched Mm -hmm. the numbers in our space time in terms of how much energy it takes to if there is a multiverse to go out of our continuum and into another space-time continuum and doing it as a proportion of the energy within our universe is more than 100 percent so the energy is not available to do it no but it happens all the time in these universes so clearly their their interdimensional barriers are much weaker i mean hey in dc you just have to run very fast and you could do it so Uh, i think from there we're on incredible hulk 202 havoc at the heart of the atom by Len Wein, Salvage Sema, and Joe Staten. Because you demanded it, the return of Jorella, the woman the man brute loves. So that's not a huge amount of recap there. Um, 
This is the third appearance of Jarella. This yes. was an idea that was conceived by Harlan Ellison, the sci-fi legend. Oh, that's where, right. Yeah, he did come up with this little microverse thing. Yeah, and the microverse was actually, you know, in the model of the atom that physicists knew was erroneous when they first proposed it, where the nucleus is a ball in the middle and the electrons orbit around it like planets. You know, sci-fi writers love the idea that, well, if you shrink small enough, maybe there's a whole planet and civilization on the side of one of these electrons that's shown up in Fantastic Four. It showed up in Hunk. So that's Harlan Ellison's idea is at one point Hunk got shrunk down and found a whole microverse with Jarella. He was intelligent. He fell in love. When he got restored to normal size, he thought it was lost forever, not realizing that her entire existence was you know, on this speck of dust. Beyond not even realizing that Jarella's world was on a speck of dust, he didn't realize that that speck of dust was caught on his pants. So then a couple <laughs> years later, the Hulk returned to Jarella's world when he got shrunk down, and that same speck of dust was right there. In this one, the shrinking starts at the end of issue 201, and he's actually inside Glenn Talbot's head. I don't, I didn't reread 201. I don't remember if it's on the same speck of dust or not, but there may be issues with that from a continuity perspective. But in this one, Jarella's not the queen. He doesn't retain intelligence and fall in love Planet Hulk style. He's, you know, the same brute he was at the time in the regular Marvel Universe. And there's a series of earthquakes going on, which is interesting on an electron because they have no internal structure, but that's another thing. So Jarella's been ousted, and Hulk is there, protects her, shows that he's got the power, stops the earthquake by grabbing two halves of the dividing earth with his hands and pulling it back together. And we eventually learn that the villain is Cyclops because who would have expected the only microverse villain we've ever seen to be the secret villain that they were promising is returning, right? Who, who else is even eligible to return from the X-Men? What Cyclops is a villain. Who knew? Uh, Cyclop <laughs> PSY. So yeah, at this point, Cyclops was a straight up hero. Except when he masqueraded as Eric the Red. But even that was just basically going undercover. That's true. So, yeah, this is, it's an issue that works. It works well as a standalone. Much better than it does from the continuity perspective. Like I said. And the physicist in me really has to park everything. Because that whole, you know, the civilization on the side of an atom will then... If it fits on the side of an electron, what is, you know, what are its constituent particles? What are they made out of? Especially since electrons don't have sides. The, <laughs> yeah, they are point particles within a region of space where they are allowed to exist. They have zero radius. If they had a radius, they would not only have internal structure... But they'd violate relativity because no information can travel faster than the speed of light. And if you have no internal structure, you move one end, the other end moves instantaneously, and instantaneous transmission is faster than speed of light transmission. So all elementary particles actually have zero radius. So electrons have zero radius, the quarks that protons and neutrons are made up of have zero radius, and so forth. Really, every story where you shrink down and it's set on the size of an atom, or you know, there's a whole galaxy inside a cat collar. There is no science behind it. That's pure 
fun from an artistic perspective. Yeah. Now, I actually, this is one of the earlier issues I had. I got it as somebody had it. And, you know, one of those things when you're a kid where you kind of end up with these things without knowing how. They're just mm-hmm. there. So this is one of the earliest Hulk issues I've read. So I remember this one. I remember him fighting those giant warthogs. That's what I remember about that. It's not the, not anything else about it. I remember Cyclops. I just remember mini Hulk fighting giant warthogs when I was like nine years old, which at that point was just awesome. Yeah. Like I said, it's a lot of fun. So if, if you were to pick this up as your first issue and didn't know where the speck of dust was supposed to be on his pant leg, or didn't know about the physics behind it and the science, and it's just Hulk was going to another realm that's you know shrunken down and inside Talbot's head. It it would be a lot of fun. Yeah, and I didn't because I didn't have the issue before or issue after, so I had no clue. Yeah. I barely had the cover attached to it. <laughs> yeah, it's a very distinct era for the Hulk. This is the era where. <laughs> You know, Betty Ross is married to Glenn Talbot. That's right. And Glenn Talbot's not dead. He's been dead for a long time now, right? Since before Peter David, I think. Yeah, you, it couldn't have been that long after this. I was actually surprised when I read it that he was still alive in 1976. Because when I was doing my Hulk read through, it felt like he died surprisingly early. Because he was a major part of the supporting cast. Pretty much right from the get-go. Yeah, it, it's amazing how much of a part of the cast he was that he's still synonymous to like a lot of people with the Hulk, even though he's been dead for well longer than he's been alive, was alive. Yeah, I mean, he's he showed up in the movies. Yeah, on the TV show. I mean, not the TV show, the uh, but on TV, on um, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. He was a major character up until this last season. Yeah, I believe played by Adrian Pazdar. Yes. yes. I was trying to remember how to pronounce his last name, so I'm glad you did that. <laughs> so just to, to fill in the listeners, we've had a technical glitch, and Al has had to switch devices. So that's why I'm reading them all now. So next up, we're at Iron Fist number six, Deathmatch, by Chris Claremont, John Byrne, and Frank Chiaramonte. For months, Danny Rand has searched for his beloved Colleen Wing, but now that he has found her, he may wish he hadn't. So this has a little bit of flashback filling in stuff that happened previously in Marvel premiere and earlier issues of Iron Fist. Oh, yeah. Where Danny is basically parachuting into the enemy compound to save Colleen Wing. And he may wish he hadn't because she's been brainwashed and attacks him on arrival. And, oh, yeah. And beats him up. Yeah. She is awesome in this issue. This one I've read because we actually sort of covered this one back in episode 58 on our Everybody Loves Angar episode with Murray yes. Fox. Because okay. it does have Angar the Screamer. Yes, who is never the butt of anyone's joke. God, Not no. even Deadpool Grammar's jokes. <laughs> uh, I don't, do you know that panel? Hmm. Th- there's an issue no. of... I, I wish I knew where it came from, but it's Deadpool wondering, is it who or whom? I think if it's like a major threat, like a Thanos, then we use whom. But if we're dealing with like Angar the Screamer, then it's just who. Who. <laughs> or something well, along I those can, lines. I can go with that. Although I think visually Angar's a bigger threat than Thanos. He might, you know, blind you just from his outfit. That, yeah, fr- that vest with the fringe and no shirt. 
Yeah, yeah. Angar is a product of his time. Oh God, yes. I like these early Iron Fist issues. I mean, well, let's face it. If you like the X Men from this time, it it's Claremont and Byrne as well. I mean, yeah, and. Like the X-Men of its time, it is pretty heavily serialized, so I don't know if I'd recommend reading issue six only. Uh, your better bet is probably to track down Essential Iron Fist, which has his Marvel premiere run as well as his entire solo series. Yeah. I mean, as a if you just want to give it a try, you can at least kind of go with four to six, because that's what we covered on that episode, and that's kind of its own little mini-story. You can at least fill in the blanks there, although... Some stuff, like you said, the kidnapping of Colleen Wing still happens before that, so you don't get everything. But that's kind of yeah. like a little self-contained chapter, at least, or semi-self-contained. Yeah, it, that would be more like, you know, watching Empire Strikes Back, where you've got a complete story within what's clearly a bigger story. Yeah. Oh, much better analogy. I like that. Iron Fist was a little bit odd because it was second person. It's you do this, you do this, you do this, but the art is not drawn like it's through your eyes. But they're definitely writing it as though the reader is Iron Fist. Um, yeah, uh, that's the 70s. They did that a, a bit in the 70s. You are Iron Fist. The Yeah, they were trying it a bit, and it, it's worth an experiment. And once you've started, I could see why it's hard to stop, because that is the way the book works. But, yeah, to me, it didn't work all that well but again iron fist uh iron fist the netflix series was probably the least popular of the marvel netflix series i think it's an accurate representation of the comics where people have a hard time figuring out how iron fist works as the lead and he works best with the supporting cast they yes he started to excel on the netflix series the same way he started to excel in comics when they put him in the same room as luke cage oh god i said for years now of course it's not going to happen with netflix but i was saying for years when they announced these that i don't want luke cage season two and i don't want iron fist season two i want cage and fist season one yeah the heroes for hire yeah i want to give them their both for their own first year you know our own series first to you know first season to introduce them and then you merge it all those series to one extent or another you always have somebody saying well they kind of you know Felt, you know, there's periods that feels like it lags a bit or they stretch, had to stretch things to make 13 episodes. Well, if you're putting everyone's stuff together now, you have no problem with 13 episodes. You got yeah. more than enough story. Yeah, there's definite potential there. I, we're recording this after they've announced Endgame is going to be released with more footage, but before that's out, so we don't know what that footage is. Part of me was really hoping that in that scene where Strange says, is that everybody? Wong's response is going to be almost... And then more portals open and we see the defenders from Netflix, the agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Runaways and Cloak and Dagger come through. Oh, that'd be cool. And then maybe a post credit scene with Deadpool and the rest of X-Force poised and ready for battle with Deadpool going, I swear, guys, our portal's going to go open any minute now. Any minute. <laughs> come on. Just a minute. Hold on. This wouldn't have happened if we had Wolverine. But yeah, and also reading this, you can see... They didn't have to change. I mean, unlike some female characters, let's say when they readapt them, they didn't have to do much change to Colleen Wing. I mean, even brainwash, she's still awesome and a badass. Yeah, Colleen Wing and Misty Knight are the standouts of the Iron Fist solo series. And you, I, I get why they got their Daughters of the Dragon spinoff. Yeah, and you could see why Claremont wanted to bring them in as supporting characters in X Men. Yes, and he did for briefly. A while. 
Yeah, until he was told, uh, no, no, they're for Power Man and Iron Fist. Hands off. Yeah, with Cyclops' forgotten girlfriend. But anyway. Yes, but anyway, moving on. Uh, so next up is Iron Man issue 89, Brute Fury, by Archie Goodwin, George Tusca, and Vince Coletta. Beaten and on the verge of drowning, Iron Man has fallen victim to the deadly Blood Brothers. Foe's shellhead has never defeated without help. Well, help has just arrived in the form of Daredevil, the man without fear. Because you're planning to cover this yes. in episode 104, I'm going to suggest that we keep it very brief. Oh, yeah. Of the eight nope. issues we're talking about, this is the last one I had actually read prior to being invited to come on this episode. Because at one point I did a Daredevil read through with every Daredevil appearance I had for him in the issue or in the order they came out. So, oh, okay. I dipped in and out of this story without reading the issues before and after because that's all Daredevil was there for. Oh, yeah, makes sense. But yeah, no, um, this actually along with the FF issue is one of the ones that's the most related to this because this uh, 88 to 91 is basically a force you fight with the Blood Brothers based on coming out of the uh, Captain Marvel story with Thanos. Yep. Blood Brothers, of course, having first appeared in Iron Man 55, I believe it was, with Thanos. Yes, although Iron Man's help in that issue was the Drax the Destroyer, who I think would have been, was probably more useful than Daredevil. Probably all. Yeah, he wasn't always that intelligent. So here, when Iron Man figures out, oh, you know, because Iron Man is the, the super genius and the lead of the book. So he's the one that figures out, okay, they get their strength together. So Daredevil leads the other guy away. Drax wouldn't be so much a lead him away thing, although... Drax might be the kind of guy where if Iron Man says we have to separate them, Drax might just pick one up and jump Hulk style. And remember, this is the original Drax when he was normal intelligent. This was not mind blast by moon dragon, brain dragon, brain damage Drax who loved Alf. <laughs> yeah, true. It wasn't the Drax that I was first introduced to. Yeah, the one that kind of looked like the Green Hulk, basically. Yeah, And also Drax has cosmic powers. Potentially, if you're fighting people with cosmic powers, you want people with similar levels, not, you know, guy who can hear things far away only. Yeah, but again, um, one but of the, the reasons it did. And it's, I mean, like I said, Daredevil is my, my favorite superhero. And some of that is because while he certainly has superhuman abilities, he's nowhere near like a Superman or Iron Man power level. Exactly. I could just see Iron Man's face, though, when he's told... Oh, I have to fight the Blood Brothers. We're going to have help. Oh, who? Hey, Drax last time. Is it Drax again? Is it Thor? Wonder Man? Ms. Marvel? Captain Marvel? No, Daredevil. He's got a stick he throws at people, right? Yep. And yeah, that's he was. Help. He was already a very good, well-trained fighter, but not... They hadn't yet introduced his actual ninjutsu training and things like that, so... Yeah, that wouldn't come until Miller. Yeah. All right, but yes, we are going to cover this, and this is going to be covered more extensively in an upcoming episode. So moving on to Marvel Premiere. Yes, Marvel Premiere number 31, Birthday, by Bill Mantlow, Keith Geffen, and Klaus Janssen. Featuring the man-brute called Wood God, the most bizarre superhero of all. The House of Ideas does it again, all-out action in the mighty Marvel manner. <laughs> Is it just me or when they start saying the House of Ideas and Mighty Marvel Manor, that means that they don't really know how else to sell the issue, aside from the company's reputation? Especially when they have to use both. Yeah. Yeah. Except I, I own all eight of these, so I, I read 
this and the Thor issue we're going to talk about the other day to prepare for this. I understand why the Wood God issues of Marvel Premier were much cheaper to get as back issues than the Doctor Who issues of Marvel Premier. Really? Oh, yeah. There's a significant <laughs> price difference. Shocking. Um, yeah, Wood God is what they call a clone graph. They say he's a combination of human and animal DNA. He's basically a mythological satyr. Right. Yeah. So not not a centaur. For those of us who grew up with the Hercules cartoon, you know, he's more like the, the guy with the flute than Newton. He's more like Pan. Pan. If you're going yes. classical mythology. Yeah. Which I think that's the inspiration for the character on that the Hercules cartoon. So Makes it's yeah. yeah, it's like he's you know, the, the centaur is attached to the, the horse's rear legs rather than the horse's neck. So you don't have to ask yourself questions like, how does he breed with two rib cages? And why does he have two stomachs? How is all this working? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the centaur would be more like um, the original form of Comet, Supergirl's horse. Yeah. Man on top, horse on bottom. Mm-hmm. So this is... Oh, God. I mean, it. it's not a bad issue, but it... I could see why this is a difficult character to continue with in the long term because he was created as an adult. He's a few days old. His education was incomplete when the mob of angry, you know, sort of peasants or equivalents with the torches and pitchforks storm in, release the toxic nerve gas that they were supposed to be doing before they created Woodgod as a side project and kills the town. So we know Woodgod is immune to it, but just by his nature, all the normal superhero tropes are not going to apply, right? He's not going to have a secret identity because he's not, he can't pass for human. No, it actually, the original part of that does sound, except for the, um, except for the peasants does sound very much like, uh, the creation of him, Adam Warlock created as an adult, only a few days old. Yeah. It's a concept that they can go a long way with. And, this first issue is not bad. I haven't actually read the next two because I'm pretty sure Woodgod has three consecutive issues. I may be mistaken in that because Marvel Premier was like the classic DC Brave and the Bold where it was almost a trial book. You know, a few yeah. issues of a new character and if it takes off, they get their own book. Yeah, because so, that's where Adam Warlock had his first showing for a few for the first two issues. Yeah, as we already discussed, Iron Fist, a lot of that. So there, there's potential here. You know, if I were editor-in-chief at the time, I'd have greenlit it too. But I also, I mean, maybe it'll be more clear after reading the next two. I get why it would have been a hard property to continue with. Looking back at this seri- at the series, though, when I look at the covers, I do want to do a read of Marvel Premiere because they just have some bizarre attempts at things. I, want, I do want to check that out at some point, you know, the series in whole. Yeah, I've got most of these through... Uh, Marvel Digital Unlimited subscriptions, the GitCorp DVDs, and all the essentials. Because those are really cost-effective ways to fill in the back issues. So I picked them all up. But Marvel Premier and Marvel Spotlight, I went to back issues to fill in the gaps. Because it was like, I've got so much of the series and enough of a collector's impulse, I can't walk away without plug- filling in those gaps and plugging those holes. I understand that feeling. You either have to fill that in or you got to get rid of them all. Yeah. But it's nice. Yeah. I ended up with Torpedo, who didn't know it at the time but yeah he tied into new warriors which is oh yeah turbo yeah that was the the first superhero comic i regularly collected 
All right. So real quick, I'm looking on ComicBookDB for Woodgod. So his next appearance is in January 77 in Marvel Team Up 53 and then 54 and 55. Okay. And then 1980 in Hulk 50, 251 to 253 and 256. And then he waits until 1980 for Quasar 14. 1980 or 1990? Sorry, 1990. Okay. With Quasar 14. Because he vanishes to... He ends up on the Stranger's World. Okay. All which right. I'm sure the Quantum Cast will get to at some point in the next year or two. All okay. right. But enough of what God. We have one more to go. Yes, Thor number 250, If Asgard Should Perish, by Len Wein, John Buscema, and Tony DeZuniga. Odin is missing. The search for him begins in If Asgard Should Perish, which is kind of spoilerish because the search for Odin doesn't actually begin until the last couple of pages. (laughs) Because there's a, a demon whose name is escaping me now, who has actually stolen the Odin power via... I think he's got Odin's spear, Gungnir, in mythology that actually has the the enchantment that it'll always return, like Mjolnir does in Marvel Thor. Mjolnir's enchantment, I believe, was it'll never miss its target. Oh, really? I did not know that about the spear. Yeah, my my understanding is that Mjolnir would never miss its target, which is why we get thunderstorms, because when he threw Mjolnir at an ice giant and the ice giant held up a stone tablet to try and stop it, Mjolnir couldn't miss. It smashed through, hit the ice giant, but one of the shards from the tablet lodged in Thor's head. And when he gets headaches, he gets mad and he gets in his cart with Tooth Nasher and Tooth Grinder, the eight-legged goats, whose names may or may not have been invented by Marvel. I don't know that part. And their hooves running across the sky create the thunder and Thor's rage, he just throws lightning down at the earth. Yeah, Gene Hendricks would know much better. Yes, he would. And then I would. But my understanding is that Thor had the the object that would never miss, and Gungnir would always return to Odin after he threw it. Now, the cover has Mangog on it. That's not the demon that has Odin in this, is it? Uh, yes, actually, I think it is. Yes. Okay. I'm. Yeah. You know what? I've seen so many covers with him. I think I don't remember anything with him. The only thing I, I read with him, I know, was during Dan Jurgen's Thor run back in the early 2000s, I guess. But I don't even remember anything about Mangog, which is weird because he seems such a big character in Thor, but doesn't stick out with me at all. Yeah, I've read very little Thor. I read the first one and a half or so essentials. I lost interest before Jack Kirby's second run really got into its swing. So I'm looking forward to Make Arts Marvel giving me the, the kick in the pants I need to read that. But really from there, skip ahead to uh, the Walt Simonson run. And then from there, skip ahead even past the Jan Jurgens run, I heard so much about more to, you know, the JMS run and Fraction and then the first part of Jason Aaron. I, I prefer the the less powerful and more vulnerable heroes. Understood. So explain, yeah, so Thor would not be up there on your list as high. No. But yeah, Thor is also a bit of a blind spot for me. I mean, I've read like the first one or two issues, you know, during the Mystery 83, 84 I've only read smatterings of issues here and there, like some of the uh, Rutland Vermont issues that, you know, had Thor in it, of Thor. Um, I've only read a couple of the Simonson ones. I keep meaning to, I just keep losing track of stuff, but I keep meaning to read the whole run, but I only read a couple of those. And then 
I mean, I started picking it up actually when I was, you know, first buying comics back in the late '80s, early '90s, with uh, the first issue of uh, Eric Masterson taking over. Okay. So my main thing of originally reading Thor wasn't even Thor; it was well, the, the guy, man, who would later be known as Thunderstrike, and then yeah. dropped that. And then I did pick up some of those theory, series you did talk about, you know, the uh, JMS run when that started up. Uh, I did read the Dan Jurgens run when that came out, and or at least for like the first few years. And then also, um, I did read the first six-issue miniseries of, uh, sorry, not the first six-issue issues he did, but the first six issues Jason Aaron did with uh, Jane Foster as Thor. Okay. Yeah, I haven't read the Jane Foster Thor. So, I mean, again, Thor is a bit of a blind spot. He doesn't intrinsically appeal to me, but I will say this feels like it's more worthy of that multiple of 50 spectacular status than the Avengers 150 did for here. Oh, Yes. Of these eight issues, I would say Avengers was probably the one I enjoyed the least. And it's up against Wood God. <laughs> yeah. I know. That's the sad thing about that. I mean, again, well, you you did have a good point about the fact that the Avengers, that that was a way for people to read it. Although it wasn't at the 70s, wasn't Marvel kind of flooding the, the, the stands with all these reprint books anyway? So I'm pretty sure Marvel Triple Action probably had the that issue of Avengers reprinted not too long before that. Yeah, they were doing some specific reprint books and reprinting in annuals as well. I mean, it, it was probably better received now, or better received then than the same thing would be now. But I, I still don't know that it would have been a huge success. I mean, this is a company that put reprints in the main issues so that they still have a book to ship on time. Uh, that would get angry fan letters when they put a new cover on a reprint issue because a lot of the fans actually did ha complete runs and didn't want to have to pay for something that they didn't realize was a reprint that they already owned. You know, I, yeah, I don't blame them for not wanting to pay full price for a new cover on something that they've already got. Exactly. Yeah. No, again, for all his faults, you can definitely see some points of Jim Shooter about the time about things he did. You have to be on time if you're going to have your book out because we need to give our readers new issues. That's what we're promising them when the, when it comes out. He he definitely has faults. My first introduction to the X-Men was in classic X-Men, so I was reading the Claremont and Byrne stuff. And Jim Shooter is the man who broke Cyclops by demanding in X-Factor that he leave his wife and child because it was going to be Jean Grey and not Dazzler in the book. Mm-hmm. And Claremont tried to fix that with Inferno when they found out that was manipulation by Sinister, but people forgot it was manipulation by Sinister and kept writing as though that out-of-character moment was in character, because if you don't remember the retcon, well, then that is in character, because that's something the character did. Exactly. adding an element. But at the same time, apparently on the back end, Shooter was the editor-in-chief who said, no, 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 from now on, we only pay our artists with money and not with drugs. So... You know, nobody is all good or all bad, but... No, no, it yeah. just all depends on whether or not one part of you overwhelms the other. But yeah. yeah. Most people, for the most part, you're not ever going to find very few people who are all one or the other. Yeah, and there was some really good stuff that came out during the Jim Shooter era, although, for my money, if you want the three creatively strongest eras of Marvel, those would be the three where the editors-in-chief were uh, Stan Lee... Tom DeFalco and Joe Casada. Yeah, no, I don't know if it was the most creatively, yeah, interesting part, but at least 
he definitely did keep things consistent and going. Yeah, he's and he's not one of the editors in chief who only had the job for twelve months. No, or less. Yeah, you know when the job was his, he did most of it well. But yeah, it's also and we also maybe can blame part of it on Weisinger, if that's what you're learning from. Yeah, Jim Shooter. In some ways, right, he's Weisinger. like a it child was... actor. Yeah, it is yeah. Weisinger, right? I, I have the right editor. I... Wasn't Schwartz. I honestly don't know enough about DC to know if it was Weisinger or Schwartz, but yeah, he, when you're talking about someone who was hired in his early teens and became a professional without finishing high school and everyone's raving about how great your stuff is when you're an early teen, because it's amazing compared to people your age, like he had the talent, but he had a lot of the, ended up with a lot of the problems that child actors have. They'd never really get a, a good sense of the way the world works for most people. Because their world is different from the beginning. Yeah. Or at least from early age. Their set of experiences just doesn't mesh with the set of experiences of the people that they're working with. And when that happens, you can get conflict. All right, that makes perfect sense. And on that, I think we've covered everything for these issues and more. So yeah, thank you, it's Blaine. It's hard to for... keep me from not going on tangents. I am a math teacher. <laughs> but um, dum All right, anyway, well, so yeah, thanks for having me on. Oh, well, thank you for being on. It is much appreciated. And Blaine, now is the point for you to tell people where to find you on the internet besides you know, on this episode. Well, I've got multiple podcasts, but they're down to two feeds. So I've I've migrated the, the hosts. Basically, right now, the guy who hosts Bureau 42 is really paying out of pocket for my hobby. And I've made so many podcasts that he has to keep upgrading the server storage. <laughs> so I've moved everything to Podbean. The, the two feeds, there's the Bedtime in the Public Domain which is its own feed. There's nothing else in that feed, generally on the, the five weekdays. So Monday through Friday, I will read the next chapter in some book in the public domain. And then when this book ends, well, the next book starts on the second Monday of the following month. So I have a little bit of buffer space between the books. So right now, as we're recording, Around the World in 80 Days is coming out. That's the 11th book in the series. Started off with more of a focus on children's literature. So we've got both the Alice in Wonderland books, the first three Oz novels, the first Dr. Doolittle novel, and more coming up. We've got The Time Machine by H.G. Wells that came out a little before Christmas, as well as Life and Adventures of Santa Claus by L. Frank Baum, as well as Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. And John M. Wilson stepped in to read The Eagle Shadow by James Branch Cabell for a while. And there's more down the pipe. Like I said, book 11 is coming out now. I'm going to finish recording book 13 later today. So then the first Monday in August, we'll announce the title of book 12. And then the other feed is just the Bureau 42 Master Audio feed. That's where you'll find my X-Files retrospective show, which is the one ongoing show I still have. My past shows, the most relevant to listeners to this podcast would be the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown which is the first show that Al and I did some work on together. Right. Which was a lot of fun. Yeah, that's probably my proudest podcast achievement so far, is going through all 75 of the stories that Marvel picked as their 75 top stories through viewer polls for their 75th anniversary special. So all episodes of that are in there, as well as episodes I did about Doctor Who, about various movies, comic book physics, and that's also going to be the home of 99 Years 100 Films, where Trey Hooks and I are going to go through every movie 
that's ever won the Best Picture Award at the Academy Awards and go through those and whether or not we feel the Academy made the right decision, however many years later. There we go. All right. Well, links will be in the show notes, people. So go click and follow. Before we move on to the rest of the show, just want to say after we recorded this segment, Blaine and I both talked to Gene Hendricks. As Blaine mentioned, he would know way more about the Asgardian information than we did. Blaine was mostly right, but he was wrong about the enchantments. He had them the other way around, so I guess he had them switched. But otherwise, he was apparently correct. Okay, the episode's almost over, but we can't finish until we do our other feedback. So here's the feedback for episode 99, The Infinity Relativity Part 5, The Kirby Constant. On Facebook, the post about that episode was liked and shared by Tom McCauley, Gene Hendricks, Pat Sampson, Bill Bear, Hal Jordan, Mark Radulich, and Jesse Starcher. On Twitter, it was liked and retweeted by Chronicles Podcast, Jason Snick Venable, What Would Cap Do? Mr. Podcast A Lot, Brian Z, Marvel Superfan 19, Alex, Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Farlands, Travis Ellisor, and Ed Moore. On Tumblr, the post about that episode was liked by Elbarbus7. Speaking of Tumblr, let's thank a few more people following our page on there. All right, here we go again with those Tumblr names. <clears throat> Capu Shantonio, Cyber Starfish Maker, Farside 3, Big Boy Biffle, and Dallin B. Wasn't that bad this time. Now, we don't have any emails to read this time, and that is your fault. No, not everyone else, just you. Yes, you. Send us an email. Tell us what you thought about this episode. Tell us what you thought about the issues we covered this episode. Resurrectionspodcast at yahoo.com. Also, we, we have a Facebook page. Follow us on there. Just type in Adam Warlock or Thanos in the search box. It'll pop right up. You can follow us on Twitter at AdamThanosPod. Of course, there is the Tumblr page, which is the main page for this show, resurrectionsadamwarlock.tumblr.com. And if you want to be even more amazing, leave us an iTunes review. It's been a little while since we got one. Could use one. And finally, don't want to forget, also go check out the most recent episode of Excalibros. came out last week, actually. I was on with the guys there. We talked about Excalibur number 17, which is part of the late 80s cross time caper. Exiles number 18 from, I guess, what, like 2002? And Generation X number 6. Link is in the show notes. Hi, I'm John Wilson. And I'm Michael Kaiser. And we're the hosts of the podcast Make Ours Marvel. You know, here we are in 2018, 10 years into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, can you believe we live in a world where everyone's old Aunt Petunia knows who Iron Man is? It's crazy, right? So, to celebrate, we're on our mission to explore the roots of the Marvel Universe. You know you've thought about it. Some of you may have even done it, and now we're going to do it too. We're diving back into the long boxes of Marvel's history and podcasting our way through the whole universe. All of it. Every superhero issue. And, if I can convince Mike, we'll even do Sergeant Fury. And it's not going to be one issue per episode. That'd take forever. <laughs> it's still going to take forever. But no. 
We're going to talk about as many comics as we can in an hour. Yep, an hour and, you know, maybe a little change every week. Marvel Comics. So it'd be super cool if you came along for the ride. Look for us every Friday at MakeOursMarvel.com. That's MakeOursMarvel.com. Or on iTunes and all the other usual podcasty places. And if you want to read along with us and send us your thoughts, we might even read emails. So until Avengers Infinity War gets a spin-off Warlock and the Infinity Watch TV show, make ours Marvel. This show can now be found on Stitcher. In case you don't know what Stitcher is, Stitcher is Radio On Demand, a free app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows, plus discovered from 20,000 others. Available on iOS, Android, Nook, and iPad. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at Stitcher.com or in the App Store. All right, so I think that's the end of our episode. Thank you, John, for joining us for episode 100. This has been a blast, 100 episodes. Good job on the, you know, making a podcast last this long. Yeah, and thank you for being for, well, at least probably, what, 40 or 50 of them? <laughs> Possibly, yeah. I mean, all those Warlock issues, plus, like, a few other things, like the uh, Defenders two, uh, Def- Avengers Defenders War two-parter. Right. Looking forward to more, because we've got, we've got the... Um... Wrapping oh. up of the Warlock Thanos saga and then getting into the, well, I was going to say getting into the 80s, but there's not much in the 80s. No, but there'll, there'll be a couple episodes on the 80s briefly, and then we'll be go, and then we'll get to the uh, return of Adam and Thanos in the early 90s. Yes. And Silver Surfer and leading up to the Infinity Gauntlet. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. So make sure if people want to know, John, where can they find you? I am all over the place. Um... I do multiple podcasts, uh, and they're all on Twitter. So you can follow Make Hours Marvel, which is a weekly Silver Age Marvel show I do with Michael Kaiser. That is at Make Hours Marvel. I do uh, several times monthly or several episodes at the beginning of every month image podcast called All the Pouches, an image comics podcast that is at All the Pouches. My son and I do a commentary podcast on the Japanese proto version of Power Rangers the Super Sentai uh, series. And so we're working on the first season of that. That is at Super Silly Sentai. The Twitter handle is at Silly Sentai. I do a tweet blog on Twitter about Wanda, the Scarlet Witch, at Let's Talk Wanda. And later on this year, right after the summer, probably around September, because I'm working on it now as we speak, um, I'm launching a Transformers UK podcast. And that'll be at TFUK podcast on Twitter. I don't have a website for that yet. I didn't get web- websites for anything, but that's okay. Because really, I, I've been finding that websites are really not a big thing for finding podcasts. It's podcatchers and social media. So, um, you know, there you go. But the link to his uh, Twitter will be on there. And uh, the link to his, the website will be on the show notes as well. So if you forget the name of the shows, you can just click on there real quick to look up the names. Oh, I'm also on Twitter by myself, just you know, doing me things at John Reads Comics. No H. Yep, and it has links to all the other Twitter hand Twitters on there, so that's the one I usually put a link to because it just makes it easy to find all your stuff there. Yes, it is. And we'll be back next episode with, well, if it, I'm not sure yet, but it, if everything goes according to plan, so we'll see how that goes. We should be getting up to uh, next part of our Infinity Countdown coverage next episode. Yay. And then John will be back shortly with Warlock 15 as we close out this series of Warlock. Be the end of an era. Second series? First series? I mean, it's the second series, but it continues the numbering.
Right. It's weird like that. Yeah. All right. We'll see you guys next time. Bye. Hey, everyone. Just got to add this in real quick. Um, recording this on the morning of July 28th, which, fingers crossed, is the day this episode comes out. But when John and I recorded initially, I didn't have the entire episode set yet. So I just want to make sure I thank everyone who was on this episode. Besides John, thank you to Blaine Dowler and Sarah Century for doing the Friends and Enemies segments with me. My brother Joe and Brian Zeno for doing the Hostess ads. And Jeff and Rick from Unpacking the Power of Power Pack. And Miles from J.M. Miles Explain the X-Men for doing the G.I. Joe ad with me. Thank you all. I really appreciate it. Also, I want to real quick thank everyone who's been a guest on this show over the past 100 episodes. I went over the list of the episodes, and I'm really hoping I didn't forget anybody. Fingers crossed. Okay. Thank you to Chris Matthews, The Buck, Paul French from Legion of Substitute Podcasters, Murray Fox, Chris Mosby, and Caleb Gerard from Tales from the Long Box, Jason Venable from the podcast that goes snick, Ryan Daly from Cheerscast and Midnight the Podcasting Hour over on the Fire and Water Network, John and Maggie from Married with Comics, Sean from Secret Wars and Beyond, Paul Showens from Geek Pod, Tim Price, and my wife Kim. Thank you very much, hun, for not only being on the show a few times, but also putting up with this crap for 100 episodes, and hopefully putting up with it for 100 more. Alright, that's everything. Now we can do the closing music. Resurrections, an Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast, is a fan-made production, and no copyright infringement is intended, or happening, or even understood. The opening music for this podcast is Intro Pompeii by Lino Rise, and the closing music is Dark and Dramatic by DJ Puzzle. Both are licensed by the Creative Commons license. You can find Lino Rise at free-intro-music.com and DJ Puzzle at peaceloveproductions.com. Links to both can be found on the Tumblr page. When we finish this, I'll send you the pictures real quick of, this, of the <laughs> yeah. original costume. So I don't have to type on the on the recording. That's it. That's mm-hmm. the word I'm looking for. <laughs> All right. So hold on one second then. Where is the chat thing for this? Here we go. All right. I found it real quick. So here is the red ghost in the 60s. Oh. <laughs> yes. Here's yes. The, here is the red ghost in the 70s. Whoa, yes. Like I said, a lot of weird co- weird costume changes in the 70s. Yeah, good God. So he goes from Santa Claus to, like, Satanist swinger guy. Like, what? He hit Studio 54 and yeah, <laughs> did a couple he, like, lines. And next thing you know, he's like, oh, I don't know how I got changed. 
He's literally like starring in B horror films with Alan Alda in like the late seventies now, with his like studded belt. Oh my god! And that shirt cut all the way down. Grandpa, come on! <laughs> I love his seventies costume. It's interesting. It's very intriguing. Um, it's very interesting that they kept like the undies, like the on the outside undies when this entire design would be about one billion times better if they didn't have that. It was just all red on the bottom? Yeah, um, that would have worked a lot better, I think, and then switch the belt and gloves colors to maybe like a black or something. Um, Have something different in the middle? Give him a little bit of a shirt, maybe, like under his shirt. Basically the whole costume. (laughs) Yeah, if we can just redo this whole costume. I like his studded belt, though, so I'm willing to keep it. Um, (laughs) And what's with the medallion? I just don't understand what's happening. Um, And it's clearly, like, trying to be in, like, a a star. I'm trying to think of, like, what the hell. um, Like a pentagram, you mean? Thank you. Yes, a pentagram. My grandma's like... I can see that, yeah. My grandma's a witch, and I, like, don't know how I forgot what a f- pentagram is. Okay, so, but it's totally supposed to be that, but they're, like, obscuring it so that they pass, like, the Comics Code Authority. <laughs> they're like, oh, no pentagrams here, like. I don't know what you're talking about. They blacked out, like, half of it, so they're like, oh, it's not a pentagram. It's just, like, a medallion that he just uses. <laughs> this guy is amazing. I know. When I first saw this, I'm like, what the hell is that? What How is does that? it go from that one, the, the first one to this? How does that happen? Straight up Santa. Like, you literally look like bad Santa in the first one. And then in the second one, you're like, swinging grandpa. Like, very uncomfortable person to be around, I would think. Like, the first one. <laughs> the first one, I would be a little bit uncomfortable around, but I would be super uncomfortable around the second guy. Maybe that's the point. Uh, maybe that's the point, yeah. He spends all his time with gorillas, so I guess he doesn't really... He's not, he's not too worried about what people think. Yeah, totally. He watched the movie Mephisto Waltz and was like, that must be what people are doing now. <laughs> and it's like, okay. <laughs> okay, Gramps. Uh, 